0: Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek of pop culture show broadcast in Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with a brand new episode. And as you can tell from the title, we're talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And because I had a feeling, like, I just want to re I rewatched that recently during the my uh, quarantine, like so many other people just watching other things, like revisiting things you've never, seen, like you haven't watched in a while or seeing things you've never seen before. And I was watching this and I'm like, you know what? I know I've had conversations with people about it, but like I've never recorded about it because I'm a podcaster. Like, why? Why I just have a conversation? I must have a record of it. Now, in order to do this properly, I gotta have some co-hosts with me, and I got two wonderful co-hosts. Now, the first one, uh, he—he's the one person that I've had, that I think, the most conversations about Close Encounters about, um, and I, he was, I think, the first one I asked to do this. Mr. Guy Milks, how you doing, Guy?
1: Oh, I'm 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 doing good. Hey, you can honestly you can honestly say that this is kind of a kind of a even though we're doing a director's cut, uh, it's the 40th anniversary of the special edition.
0: This is true because the special edition is going to come up in conversation, so you're yeah. not wrong. Yeah, and like I kind of wish like like when uh, I kind of get into the anniversary that came out a couple years ago, or that they, they celebrated a couple years ago. And my experience with it, but the other co-host on this is a a wonderful podcast and always has incredible stories. And it's kind of like a benchmark of like when he tells a story, I'm like, all right, I got you. Always sit forward and listen and very attentively, and I try to aspire to that. Mr.
2: Michael Lyons, how are you doing, Michael? Hey, good to be back, Tim. Thanks for having me on. I think the last time I was on, we were talking about Superman the movie uh, a couple of years ago, so. Uh, Nice to be back to talk about Close Encounters. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on Steven Spielberg's filmmaking, and I'm interested to hear Guy's thoughts on uh, Terry Garr in a skimpy nightgown. Actually,
1: (laughs) actually, I'm I'm closer to Melinda Dillon. Oh, Oh, there you go. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, This is a momentous occasion because this is the first time I've been invited back since we did – uh, the remake of Psycho. <laughs> i I've been on I've been on ban since, since then. <laughs> that's because,
0: like, when you suggest that, like, hey, you could do the Psycho remake, and I said, hey, that's a good idea. And I've just recovered from that idea. <laughs> Oh yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but like, but like I said, we're talking about close encounters of the third kind. So let's jump into our view of it right now. Okay, so the original release of *Close Encounters of the Third Kind* came out on November sixteenth, nineteen seventy-seven. Now, Guy, what is your history with *Close Encounters of the Third Kind*?
1: Um, my first viewing of uh, *Close Encounters* would be the well, it would be the closest to the special edition because I saw it on uh, when it was aired on CBS way back when I was a kid and they did and it was it wasn't a it was a special edition but it was some weird it, uh the television cuts were different than the movie cuts that, that that Steven did um so that was my first introduction to to close encounters and i was still quite young cuz they would have been what 81 82 um yeah so um and then um years later i saw the the original cut and was Utterly, well, not years, but a couple years later, and utterly confused. I'm like, wait a second. I thought we went into the spaceship. <laughs> uh, and, and we don't. <laughs> um, and then I had never seen the director's cut until they released the um, the three-disc for the 30th anniversary, the three-disc DVD that they released. And I bought that, and then I watched the director's cut for the first time then. Um, uh, spoilers, this is like my third favorite Spielberg movie. This 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 ranks uh behind Raiders and catch me if you can uh, in in my as in my favorite uh Spielberg. Right. Movies. And
0: a few things there. One, like I knew guy would be a perfect guest for this episode because you're associate you have such an affinity for this movie, but also like if I invited you on for like ET, it would be a bare knuckle boxing match for 2 hours. <laughs>
1: Nobody wants to talk Me and Jamie need to do one podcast Where it's just me and him Uh, bitch slapping et for two hours (laughs) and and it'll just be that moment from the simpsons when uh
0: homer is at the uh clown college and he mistakes one of the other clowns for a a threat and he starts beating him down in front of a bunch of kids like to death and one of the kids is like stop stop he's already dead that will be the audience like eight (laughs) minutes into that show (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's so curious that you bring up the TV edition of it because for years TV TV editions of movies were usually longer and a lot of different scenes uh, reinserted in there. Like Michael was on the show previously when we talked about Superman the movie. The Superman the movie TV cut for years was like a three hour version that just got released on Blu Ray yeah. by Warner Archive. I think maybe at most two years ago. And, like, mm-hmm. I think the reason why, especially, like, uh, uh, in more recent times, I guess, like, Ace Ventura has had different versions on TV. And, like, there's been, like, Halloween had a, diff- a TV cut because it was too short for broadcast. They, they shot new scenes for it when they were making Halloween 2. And it is a curious thing about, like, TV cuts where, like, no, we're going to put more stuff in there to pad out the runtime and justify the amount of movie we can show plus as many commercials we can have
1: legally. Right. Right. Oh, well, this was back in the time where it was on a Sunday night and they ran – they did their best to make sure those movies ran for three hours. Right. Yeah. Uh, you remember, Michael. I mean uh, – oh, yeah. You're, you're only a couple years old. Well, you may be more than a couple. Jesus. But you're a little bit old. But you <laughs> – <laughs> you, you, you you remember back in those days. I mean they, they would throw a movie on and they like, all right, we are going – um, we're going to start the movie at seven o'clock and it's not getting over till 10 or 11, you know? <laughs> it's
2: a oh, it was, it was an all night event. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, they, and they used as much commercial time as they could.
1: Yep. Yep. And and they made it, and they made it like a family event. Like, oh, broadcast premiere of this movie. And then the whole family would sit down on a Sunday night and, and it was usually Sunday nights. Yeah. Um, and it, I think it was mostly, like, the ones I remember the most are CBS and ABC doing those. I don't remember yeah. NBC doing that so much, but CBS and NBC were really good about doing it, so.
2: And like you said, Guy, you know, for,
1: for a lot of people,
2: like, maybe they didn't have cable. Obviously, the days maybe before VCRs, this was yeah. your first shot to see the movie if you oh, didn't yeah. see it in the theater, you know?
1: Yeah, well, because that's the thing, because when I was at the age that they did this, I lived out on the Saginaw Bay here in Michigan which is hmm. BFE. I mean, it is BFE. You didn't get kid. We, we were lucky that the, w- dad had bought one of those. Remember those big aerial an- antennas that oh, were yeah. on the ground and the, next to that dad bought one of those. And that's how we were able to watch get CBS and all that because they were all so far away. Um, So we were very, it was like when, so when the Sunday night, the Sunday night movie would come on. That was that was a big family event. I'm like, all right, yeah, let's watch it. So, oh, I watched, yeah. I watched yeah. some movies I would have never watched before. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I just
0: I kind of imagine like what like probably lasted longer on TV when it comes to broadcasting terms. Like, we're going to show The Godfather on the TV for the first time, or Roots. We're going to replay that. I don't know what's going to last longer and have more commercial breaks.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> funny. <laughs> funny story about that though, uh, Tim, because you brought it up. Let me do this little tangent uh back in those days the tv stations used to do theme weeks Mm -hmm. and one week would be roots where monday through friday they would show an episode of roots from like three to five or like four to six or something like that you know and they did that with roots they did that with shogun they had a godzilla week they had a monster week they had a planet of the apes week when oh, I was yeah. a kid those those are my favorite those, especially during summer. Those are I'd come in at three o'clock, you know, during Planet of the Way, Ape, Apes Week and watch the whole watch apes every day and then go back outside. I mean, I used to love those those yeah. weeks. They were a blast. Um,
0: thank you for our for listeners for dealing with our TV guy tangent for we had here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 well, I I knew we were gonna get into that because like I said, this was the first time I saw it was on T V. It was one of those Three-hour yeah. blocks, family night. That's the first time I saw it, and so I, I kind of knew I'd get into it. Right no problem. About that <laughs> I kind of missed I kind of missed those TV days. Where, where I, do teammates. too.
2: They, they kind of brought it back this summer. CBS had the Sunday Night yeah. movie on for yeah. a while this summer, which was. Fun. And I'm sure you could yeah, probably
0: yeah. go on YouTube and find so the old fun. intros and outros and of uh, compilations of those oh, kind yeah. of broadcasts. Somebody must have got kept their Betamax yeah. uh, tapes of them and uploaded those.
1: Oh, I'm sure. For sure, sure. yeah. I'm sure of it because people don't throw anything away. So, yeah, Um, I'm sure of
0: it. What about you, Michael? What was your history with Close Encounters of the Third Kind?
2: Yeah, I remember this came out Christmas uh, Christmas time of 77. Um, And I remember I was 11 years old. And this was one of those movies where, for whatever reason – I didn't see it right when it came out. I think I wound up seeing it like winter or even early spring of 78, probably because, you know, when you're 11, you can't just say, I want to go to a movie. You kind of rely on your parents for transportation and getting to the movie and all of that. So I was kind of, you know, waiting on um, my, my parents to be able to take me. But I remember by the time I saw the movie, so many of my classmates at school had seen it And the days before anybody cared about spoilers, they told me the whole movie. You know, they'd go to see it that weekend and come in and tell you the whole movie in class on Monday morning. Mm -hmm. Um, So between that and the fact that I also had the Topps trading cards that were out at the time of Close Encounters. And they showed a lot of scenes of the movie. I don't know if they did it sequentially, like from card one to card, you know, 150 or something. But it had a lot of scenes from the movie. And I remember the back of the cards would be a puzzle that you could build of the movie poster, which was just really cool of the road with the big light at the end of it, which was just a real, very ominous, cool movie poster. But between the kids at school and the top trading cards, like by the time I went to see this, I felt like I knew exactly what was coming, which was also the fun of seeing it because you were anticipating all of this going into the movie and anticipating uh, all of the scenes. Um, Tim, I went to see it at the RKO Twin Movie Theater in Colmack, oh. New York. So that's for you. I figured you'd get a <laughs> kick out of that. I I, be, I believe that's a Miller's Alehouse restaurant now. Um, one of the times I was home, I had uh, uh, lunch with family, and I think they said, this is where the old RKO Theater uh, used, to, used to stand. So um, those are my memories of the original Close Encounters, and I do remember going to see the special edition when it came out um, like three years later. I think it was summer of 1980, and I remember I loved going to see it again that summer. But I had so many friends and family members that were so ticked at going to see the movie because the movie was promoted as uh, the special edition, anyway. Was promoted as um, you're going to see inside the spaceship, you know, which was like the last mm-hmm. 10 minutes of the movie. And I remember there was a lot of backlash at the time that I paid to see this movie again, and all I got was an extra 10 minutes at the end of the movie but um i didn't care i was just you know such a geek for this movie that i was just happy to see it again and that ending to me was was a bonus and um quite honestly the first time i ever saw the director's cut of this was when i watched it for this episode for this podcast yeah so it was the, the i always i would always watch the theatrical cut because that was the one that i remembered the most um and then about five or six years ago, uh, a good mutual friend of all of us, Andy DiGenova, uh, was visiting here in Florida, and I think he had picked up Close Encounters on Blu-ray, and I always became um, Andy's kind of uh, DVD liquidation spotter's <laughs> donation spot anytime he picked up a new movie on Blu-ray. So he brought me his 30th anniversary set uh, of the, the three DVDs, and um, like I said, I, whenever I would break it out, the years, I would only watch that original theatrical cut. So, um thank you, Tim, because I don't think if it was for this podcast, I would have gotten around to see the director's cut. So, I'm interested to Very talk nice.
1: about. Very nice. That's that's a beautiful that's a beautiful set too. Um, oh the, yeah. You, oh, isn't it? You, you, yeah. You, yeah. I I, I only had the DVD set. I, I have an upgrade because it still looks good. It doesn't look, you know. Um, it's a beautiful everything that comes with. That's a beautiful set. Yeah, it really is. It I really can just
0: is. imagine. Andy pulling up to your house, driving a forklift. And it's the, it's the cage where the Raptor is in the beginning <laughs> of Jurassic Park. And in there, is just all of his old used DVDs. He drops the pod off, backs away. He says, all right. See you, Michael. I'll... Thank you. And zips down the road illegally.
2: And, and I run after it so quickly. <laughs> Showed him. Shoot him. <laughs> and then it'll just be the
0: headline is, is Florida man attacks a forklift driver more at 11. <clears> hmm. <throat>
2: <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't be the strangest no. headline out of florida i can tell you no that. <laughs> no no it is it is a
0: wonderful thing your sh- sunshine laws that allow so many weird things to be public knowledge that other states are like Whew, like montana like well i don't know like imagine if they had sunshine laws to like all the weird stuff that probably get up there it would be it would be tilting at windows like that's how we would all react to it um yeah, well, That's awesome. And my history with this, like this was another one of mine that I, would rent, I rented for the first time from the library because like I had grown up like seeing E.T. I'd seen Jaws. I've, I've obviously had seen the Indiana Jones movies, the three ones at the time. And I was going through, this is the first time I was going through his entire filmography because there's certain blind spots I hadn't seen. Like I hadn't seen this. I hadn't seen 1941 and always... And, like, Amistad at the time. And so, like, all right, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And, like, I was kind of intimidated by it because of the title. Because you would like, and, like, because I asked my, like, parents about it, Like, so what's Close Encounters of the Third Kind like? And they kind of built it up. Like, oh, it is a massive movie of its time. And just seeing the cover of it, like, the road with the the light at the end of it and the title itself. Like, it's not, like, it's not an inviting title. Like, it's it almost sounds ominous and so like all right like I, mm-hmm. I i can only imagine like in my mind's eye like my hand just like shaking as i took it off the shelf and i'm like all right now this is, we're, we're gonna do this and i believe the first time i saw this ver- uh this movie was a special edition because for years that like that was like the only one available on home media if i'm not mistaken Hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: i think you're right yeah no no you're you you are right because i looked up uh uh, cause I was looking up when the, when the special edition came out and I was reading on it and i like, yeah, that was the only way you, that's, that was the only thing you could get for the longest time with the special edition.
0: Yeah. So. And I know like the Criterion collection, like they had a laser disc, I believe that had both versions like theatrical and special edition on there. But like, that was also the time when obviously Criterion is still a prestige company, but also like, that's the only place you can get the unrated cut of Robocop um for years mm-hmm. and and it, like <laughs> how hipster my friend mike and i are because we've like he's got that on on laser and we've watched it and it's great quality and so we felt so hipsters like we're watching a uh, Laserdisc on a crt and we're just like god damn like should we be drinking on mason jars like should we really just complete the package right now and this is when <laughs> i started growing out my my hipster beard it, it was just like like I, you could just take a snapshot of it, and we would be memeable right there as, like, something not to be when it comes to hipsters. Yeah. And I really enjoyed this. Like, I, I I had, like, some certain questions, and I, I still kind of, like, I had questions about it even up until, like, a recent conversation that Guy and I had where, like, I, I have issues with the ending a little bit, but I'm sure we'll discuss that as we get there. But... It was just one of those things, like, all right, once I've seen it, like, I got to show people this. Like, I, I want to show people this. And I remember I showed this to my friend Dakota. And I remember he was just kind of awestruck and, and silent for, like, the last 35 minutes of the movie when it's the climax at uh, the, Devil's, Mount, the Devil's, Devil's Tower. And it was, like, one of those things, like, all right, like, I'd, I would go back to E.T. more often. But, like, the close encounter was like, all right, this is going to be a special case and I'm going to go back and watch it. And I remember when, for the 40th anniversary, they put this back in theaters. And I believe it was the director's cut. And I I went to make sure it was on the biggest screen possible with the the biggest sound system at Island 16 here on Long Island. And it was like one of those transcendental experiences. Like, my eyes were the size of saucers, no pun intended, watching this movie. (laughs) And it's a movie that stuck with me. And... Going back into it and reading more about it and seeing how many people were involved with it that have continued throughout Spielberg's career, which I'll kind of get into, and how this movie came about, it was in the mid-1970s, and I'm taking a quote from, like, a am paraphrasing from the book Steven Spielberg, A Retrospective by Richard Schiff, uh, uh It's a coffee table style book. It's very glossy papers and beautiful photographs, and he has anecdotes about each movie very succinctly up until Lincoln, and he was talking about... Spielberg wanted to make a movie that, like, because he loved science fiction, but at the time, it was, like, the Watergate scandal, and it was in the middle of the Cold War, America and the USSR were not speaking to each other, and he felt like it was a communication abyss. So he wanted to tell a story solely about communication, and he couldn't really get a, a handle on it until he realized, like, okay, maybe the character will be a cop because... Testimonies of cops are taken very seriously. Like, if a cop saw a UFO, people take that very seriously. Then he became an army individual working for Project Blue Book, which is investigating at the time of uh, UFOs. But then Sewer realized, no, as soon as the character's in a uniform, there's a kind of separation as an everyday man. Like, he doesn't have a, a Jimmy Stewart quality about him. So he decided to make him a family man. And it became a kind of shorthand for Spielberg's families and the rest of his movies where it's a dysfunctional family it's a broken family. And that's the, that was the key into the story. And this is like, I yeah. believe the only film he's written and directed, like he's done like kind of like uncredited writing work, like just like helping stories along, but it w- really is something to see a, a movie that's like so personal because he both wrote and directed it.
2: Yeah, I had forgotten that he, he wrote it until I was just watching again uh, recently. Um, and that is that is really interesting to, to think about that. Because, yeah, every other one of his movies has been somebody else who wrote the screenplay. Like you said, Tim, he probably did, you know, rewrites or changes uh, along the way. But you can kind of tell that more personal connection to him. And, like, there must have been, just watching it again, must have been a tremendous amount of research that went into this not just obviously on um looking to the skies and ufos and everything but the whole government piece of it and you know he really did his work for this yeah
0: because i glanced at the screenplay in preparation of this and all the dialogue between the air traffic controls between the twa uh, flight and seeing the ufo like that's his dialogue that's not just jargon that i kind of figured it'd be one of the situations like yeah i'll write some dialogue but it'll be like well, when we get there in the day, it will just be the individuals who do that job. Like, all right, just speaking their actual jargon. No, that's all that overlapping dialogue, that very Altman esque kind of like, oh, we're going to talk over each other, and it's going to be all mm-hmm. jargon because they they're professionals in their field. That's Spielberg's writing, and I find that really remarkable. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and so. After the success of Jaws, he pretty much like had a blank check and Julia and Michael Phillips the producers of the movie were coming off the success of The Sting a few years, I believe a year prior to Jaws and said they wanted to be in business with Steven Spielberg even though Columbia was kind of in dire straits, which we'll kind of get into when we get to the release of this film and how, why we have so many different iterations of this movie and A reported budget of $19.4 million to make Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And they started shooting in, I believe, excuse me, they began shooting on May 16th, 1976. And they shot, obviously, they shot in Burbank, California. They shot, obviously, the Devil's Tower National Monument in Wyoming. Um, And a lot of it as well in Mobile, Alabama, which we'll kind of get into when we get to the end of the movie. And I love how this movie opens up, like in Mexico, and it's so mysterious and it's so ominous because most of Spielberg's movies will have a really elaborate title sequence to get you in there. Even like Lord, like even um, Indiana Jones, like like yeah, we're going through the jungle of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and we have this simple text. But it's very interesting because it's like we don't see who the face of this. Uh, Fedora wearing person, but here on Close account it's, it's very stark and it's just text and, the, and it's just the rumblings of John Williams score until we have that one note hit as we go to from pure darkness into blinding light of Mexico and the discovery of these planes that have been missing for thirty years. And so, Guy, how do you feel about this opening?
1: Um <clears throat> it's a it's a great start to the to the mystery. Um, I enjoy uh at the opening. I I find that this may be um John Williams maybe most underlooked score, underappreciated score. Um it's not one that comes up I it's not one that comes a conversation enough, that's for sure, because I mean you always hear, you know, Raiders, Superman, Star Wars, all these other but this one this one never seems to be mentioned enough. And I think this is a I think this is a marvelous score. Um and I and I love the 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 twilight zoneness of it the way it opens up because it does, like you said it does the um just the simple text and the music going on and I just um I I like I, I like it because it it kind of gets you engrossed because you know the 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 the, the whole uh these planes have been missing since 1947 and <laughs> uh but they look <laughs> brand new you know I just. Just, I, I I think that's great. I just think that, and then when they talk, this is when they talk to the uh, old yes, man. Yes, the one like, who
0: saw the actual ship at the night. Yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. When they talk to the old man, yeah, it's just like, uh, yeah, I, 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 just uh, great stuff.
0: Fantastic. How about you, Michael? How do you feel about this opening?
2: Yeah, I I, I love it. I, I forgot uh, until I watched it again recently, um, that opening note and how the, the shot of the desert comes up. And I remember seeing that for the first time in the theater and everybody in the theater jumped because mm-hmm. it's so jarring coming out of those very simple black and white, uh, or I should say white credits against a black background to come into that, that scene. And just the way the music comes on, just to talk about pulling you into the story. And um, yeah, like Guy said, it, it sets up a mystery that, you know, we now have to unravel ourselves as the audience, you know, all we're shown are these planes and they've been missing since 1947 and they're in pristine condition. And what the heck is all this about? You know, like we're, we're starting to wonder, we know that the answer is coming, Um, but it, it kind of piques our curiosity really, really well. And I also think it's interesting that um, Steven Spielberg opened with this and a few other scenes that kind of set up the world of um, UFOs and, doesn't really introduce us to our main character just yet. So I love that. I, I love the way the movie kind of first pulls us into what this is going to be about and then introduces us to the Richard Dreyfuss characters. So yeah, I love this scene. Uh,
1: really quick, Tim, cause you might know him before I forget. I want to know how Spielberg get to Dufo- in this. Well, like he asked.
0: Yeah. Th- that's the thing. Like you like, don't ask, don't get like he, he had, he wanted somebody with like heart and he wanted a French speaking, uh, actor. And like, he had obviously yeah. was a huge fan of Truffaut and Truffaut had obviously acted in his own work. He's able to, he's written, he's directed himself and so on and so forth. Right. And he was on the phone with, uh, Truffaut's interpreter because Truffaut like never mastered the English language and something that he felt very, um, uncomfortable about. Like he, like the most nervousness he felt was people make fun of him trying to master the language of English and mm-hmm. but he was like, what was it Bob uh, Balaban, the one who plays his uh, interpreter in this movie? Like he felt like he did a lot better than right. he gave himself credit mm-hmm. for. And when Spielberg was on the phone with the interpreter, he said like, oh, like, let me read the script. And so he had telegrammed. He sent the script over to him. And like three days later, he gets a telegram from Truffaut. says like, all right, where
1: do I go for my costume fitting? Because uh, I mean, talk 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 about the perfect perfect person to play that character. I mean, seriously. I mean, he it's, it's it's really good. I and I and I and every time I watch it, I'm just I always go, how did he get Truffaut? How did he get? Him? I mean, seriously. I mean, because I mean, it's a blockbuster movie, and you know, obviously Truffaut is not known for you yeah. know, blockbusters, you know. And I'm like, how did he get him for this movie? Because it is like the most perfect casting ever I just I amazing so I'm glad you told me I'm glad <laughs> yeah it, it, it's like
2: yeah
0: I always
1: wondered yeah that it, it's
0: very like it's very curious because I know Richard Dreyfuss as Roy he's the main character of this movie however I think Truffaut is the heart of mm-hmm. the film
1: agreed agreed I would agree I would agree he, I, yeah. they, they are very good um, companions because they're both Follow obviously. Truffaut knows what's going on, and Dreyfus yeah. is trying to figure out what's going on. Um, but they, 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 they're like the two sides of the same. They're, they're, they're the people coming to the story, to the story. But they're, they're, they're both uh, enamored with it. They're both, you know, it, I, it it, it, it works really well the, the way they juxtaposition it between the two. If you ask me,
0: I happen to agree, and it is. <laughs> And I, and I think it's because like he has both of them have, they don't approach the material cynically. It, like they, it, no. and I, and I think that's yeah. why this movie is yeah. so successful because it's so easy like, like aliens. Bruh, I don't believe in aliens or what have you. I don't know why John Wayne is the one responding to these UFOs suddenly. Like ah pilgrim, I don't believe it. (laughs) That was more for to Kennedy right there. Like I am I I don't believe in UFOs. Um, (laughs) uh, I I I enjoy because it because they're so open and they're so because is the reason why Dreyfus got the role is because Spielberg was telling the story to Dreyfus when they were making Jaws and Dreyfus wanted the role. But Dreyfus was not uh, Spielberg's first choice. No, Oh, no? Steve McQueen
1: was. Oh, good God! I'm glad he didn't do go with that way. Wow, oh, I can't see that at all. Oh, no, that, that I, I and listen. I like Steve McQueen. This this movie would not have been the same at all, at all. No,
0: push. and, and the re- like he he like it was a hard sell. Like Spielberg went to a bar to meet up with McQueen to talk about it, and it's like. And the extras that you probably find on the three disc DVD set you have, he was sa- people were saying like, "I'm not a drinker. Like half a glass of champagne and I'm dizzy," but I had three beers to his fourteen, trying to convince him. And during this conversation, like during this pitch meeting, like McQueen had to break up a fight between people in this bar. Like so, it's like America's tough guy right there. And the reason why McQueen turned it down, he's- he McQueen admitted, "I can't cry on film." And I know this character needs that, oh, and so wow. that's why he said no. And then it, it was a it was a who's who of people that Spielberg went after. Like he went for Al Pacino, he went for Al, uh, Gene Hackman, he went for Dustin Hoffman. They all said no, and it was eventually it was kind of like Dreyfus saying like, "Well, Pacino has no sense of humor, and Dustin, nah, he can't do it." And so eventually, it was like staring right in the face. Like Spielberg was like, "Oh, you should be Roy Neary."
1: Yeah, because that, that, that's why he mm. uh, he didn't come back for Jaws two, right? Is because he was in the middle of I believe free, so. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, anyway, I, I love Dreyfus in this movie. I really do. I, I, yeah, yeah. He's. Yeah, I, I've been a fan of Dreyfus, and i have this showing since uh, uh, American Graffiti. So, mm. um,
0: and if yeah. you want to hear more thoughts about Jaws two. Guy and uh, Michael did an episode with Andy on the Real Fans for Real Movies Podcast Network. So yes, plug, plug, <laughs> bam. <laughs> yes, we did. That was good
1: episode, too. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, that was Yeah, and, and I, I enjoy Jaws, too. Like I, I
0: think it's a fun sequel.
1: It is. It is. It's it's way better than it has any right to be.
0: Agreed. Sure. I mean i think it's like in the same yep. like vein yep. of like Psycho exactly. 2. Like, you know, it's not gonna be like anything like the original, but it's still a lot of fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um but like Michael was saying before, like we don't get to see many the we don't see the main character like the into like the fourth scene into the movie. Because like obviously we have the scene here in the desert, which I really enjoy because I love the moment where it, it exemplifies this movie because the witness is speaking Spanish, which is being translated to English, which is being translated into French, and I'm just like, "Oh, that just underlines mm-hmm. this entire movie right here because it's all about communication." I love, other than the very beginning, like you don't see any subtitles for the rest of the movie, right? Um, and it's, a, it's an odd line delivery, but I always enjoyed it. It went, uh, uh Laughlin, the guy who's the interpreter, he says like, "Mr. Lacomb wants was the, the numbers of the engine blocks." Uh, and they turn they shut they turn on all the engines and it's it's only like the downside of this movie like if his movie came out after Star Wars um like a year afterwards like this obviously would have been done by Skywalker sound like it's the only thing that's missing from this movie like it doesn't have the Skywalker sound which you would associate with Spielberg movies
1: mm. Mm. but
0: that's me being really nerdy right now let's move on
1: you, definitely because i'm like I it was fine with me
0: <laughs> um and so we have the next scene where like the next big set piece is where the air traffic controls detect a ufo and a ufo nearly crashed into two uh uh airliners and everybody's freaking out like do you and they ask the pilots like do you want to report a ufo and they're like uh no um how do you feel about this, Michael? Like the kind of experience like of all the people wondering, like, did we just experience a UFO or not?
2: yeah, this this seems amazing. I mean, you you compared it to a Robert Altman film, and it really is. And I remember seeing it even as a kid, it feels like a documentary just with everybody talking over each other. it It felt real. Like the first time you see this in the movie theater, even now, like, You don't even think that these are actors playing these air traffic controllers. They seem like they just hired real air traffic controllers to do this um, because there's that just in the moment in a sequence like this in real life, people would be talking over each other. There's all that uh, adrenaline uh, that's going. And I think that was a real chance that Spielberg took at the time, uh, probably borrowing a page from Altman, uh, to do it, but I think it, it heightens the reality and it heightens the what the heck is going on of this scene and what we've already seen uh, with the planes as well. And I do love the one pilot when he's asked, do you want to report a UFO? And he goes, no, we don't want to report one of those. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs>
3: right. Right,
0: exactly. Because we would take him seriously.
1: Um, I like, yeah. yeah. I like the fact that these two opening scenes tell you everything without telling you nothing. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: They, they tell you everything about this movie without without telling you a goddamn thing. And it's a ama- it's a it's a it's something that I didn't pick on, up on when I would, so obviously I I as I got older and then I, I the more I watched it I'm like, man, they're really telling you everything and they're and they're just sucking you into this mystery. This is um it's very very well done the way the way the, these opening scenes are. Just it's very well done. And like I, that. I enjoy yeah. I enjoy what
0: you said totally. earlier, guy. When you said like it's it's reminding you of a Twilight Zone episode, and it's so funny yes. where like
1: Spielberg got his mm. first
0: professional gig was a Night Gallery episode. Mm.
1: Yeah, that's true. Oh right, and, like he's like right? twenty
0: three yeah. years old and he has to direct Joan Crawford. Talk about intimidating! Wow. <laughs> <They talk> about <laughs> <a nightmare. laughs> well, Betty Davis wasn't around, so we didn't have to like separate them. So there, it wasn't
1: like that bad. Well, no, yes, no, well. <laughs> Listen, I've seen Bobby uh, Dearest. <laughs> I'm clenching a
0: uh, glass of water here. I'm squelze and shatter that upon the hearing of that title, just like. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no wire hangers will be forever no. etched in my brain. <laughs> right? Forever, that's that's one of those movies that I saw on CBS. One of the movie I would not have seen at that age. <laughs> yeah. And it has been etched in my brain ever since. <laughs>
3: um,
0: what I enjoy this about more like like um that that kind of documentary feel, with everybody talking over each other, but it's another. Hallmark or Spielberg is because he likes people pop into frame and lean into frame so like how everybody's leaning over that one air traffic controller's shoulder at one point when it's like six people standing around him and then just like mm-hmm. listening yeah. attentively like uh, what's going on here? It's, it's just another fantastic moment here because I, I guess I'll say this thought a little bit later on but it's my feelings on Spielberg's career after this movie but finally we go to Muncie, Indiana where well, yeah, we have Muncie C the we have um a young Barry Guiler played by uh what's the child's name? I had it up here before. Oh, Carrie Guffey. Um Enamored by something going on, I had all of his toys turning on and running out to find out what's going on. And Melinda Dillon playing uh, Jillian, his his mother, just exhausted, falling asleep in her clothes with the TV on and running after him. It, it really is something here. Like, it's... I didn't realize, like, oh, wow, Stranger Things with Super 8 really ripped this movie off hard with all the toys coming on and everything. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, 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 big time. Um, before I forget, uh, Spielberg always said that that he did Jurassic Park as like a, if he was ever to, if he was ever to do a sequel to Jaws, but he also pulled from this too because the scene with Samuel Jackson at at Medry's computer is almost exactly like this the the the, the air traffic controller scene. Oh, huh. oh, yeah, that's true. I never put that together. So. Um, but now let's talk about, uh... <laughs> uh I was <laughs> waiting for like, well, how's he gonna transition out of this <laughs> thought? Come on. Let's, please, let's talk, because I love Melinda Dillard, especially in this movie. She is, wow. Yeah, I, I love her. And I, she does really good in this movie. Um, uh, the, 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 the... And, um, and this is... Uh, I know he did kids with with Jaws, but I think this was the movie where he really cemented his ability to work with kids because he gets yeah. a lot out of he gets a lot of, out of out of the the kid that plays Barry, uh, a lot out of him. Um, I, I I don't know if there's ever been a director that works with kids as well as he does. Is I there?
0: Mean, other than Truffaut, Truffaut did fantastic work. I mean, his first movie, The Forge of Blows, yeah. is yeah, all that's kids.
1: True. That's true. That's true, but yeah, uh, I I love this scene. Now, this is a very whimsical scene. <laughs> when we get to oh, the it, scene later, it, oh, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. I, I, but th- this is very whimsical. This is very. I I, I enjoy it. Uh, I, I love you know the the very tired single mom that 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 she plays. She does it very well. It's very um, I, it's, it's 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 a great scene. She really she does a really good job. Um, and I. I and, and and again, you get these three scenes that are completely not connected, but they are. They are, yeah. but they're not. You know, and like I said, this is a continuation of the. They're telling you everything without telling you a thing. So it's it's yeah. it's, it's it's great
2: stuff. And how do you feel about this, Michael? Tim, you probably. Oh no, I was going to ask you probably have information on this, but I remember a story that um, they got the 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 little boy, they got his reactions when he came into the kitchen by, like, having somebody in a gorilla suit standing off camera. Um, I forget, I don't know the entire story. I mean, I I don't know if if you do, but I remember hearing that, like, Spielberg knew he needed that genuine reaction from him walking into the kitchen and seeing, you know, the alien, supposedly. Um, And, uh, like, just knowing that when you watch it is even, makes it even more, magical because you know that that's what went into it but when you're watching it you realize you're watching a child who's probably seeing a being from another world right and you're
0: absolutely correct um Mm -hmm. when carrie duffy comes in the first thing he sees is a person in a clown costume and that's how his first reacts and then when he turns to his right (laughs) there that's when somebody in a gorilla suit stands out that's why he kind of jumps back a little bit And so he's kind of afraid, but then he Mm. takes off his head and it's the makeup person. He's dealt with the makeup person before. That's why he smiles. He's like, oh, it's just the makeup person. That's why. And he got, there's so many different ways with methane acting because he can only really get one take out of Carrie because he was only three years old at the time.
2: Right. Yeah, he's extremely And there's a photo. I just love... uh... No, no, no. You you go ahead. Oh, sorry. You're, you're it, it was on. like
0: there's a photo of Carrie just wearing the head of the gorilla suit, and it's like half the size of his body because he's so small. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it looks ridiculous. Like, he looks like he's wearing, like, his body is one of the faces of the plan
2: of the apes. That's awesome. <laughs> I was i was just going to say what I also love about this scene, and, and Spielberg would do this later in E.T., is he brings the camera in just as something has happened. I think he did this with E.T. when E.T. was in the backyard, and he would show the gate swinging back and forth, uh, giving you a sense that something had just happened. We just missed it. And he does it here, too, where you get into the kitchen, and the refrigerator door is open, and all the food spilled out, and the, the little uh, cat door or doggy door, and the door is swinging back and forth, and... You know, like, like Guy said, so it kind of adds to that, a little bit of that whimsy, but also that, that mystery of, you know, what just happened here. Yeah,
0: and he definitely would do that. And it's something that he would obviously continue with E.T., and it's something that I find mm-hmm. very funny because of, um, um, I I didn't realize upon this viewing, there's so much Coca-Cola placement, uh, product placement in this movie And it's like that's a thing throughout his entire (laughs) Coca-Cola. Oh my god. Like no wonder they were able to pay for this movie.
1: Oh, Budweiser, yeah. (laughs) Budweiser. They show a can and they go directly into a commercial in that one
3: scene.
1: (laughs) They do. And they
2: play the whole theme song. Yep, they do. I mean, (laughs) if like,
0: if they wanted to really date themselves, they could have had a Billy beer, the Billy Carter beer at the time. Like they really want to make this late 1970s.
2: Oh my gosh. Wow. Billy
0: beer. Man. Just a flashback. And I only know about that because I love the 70s. They brought that up in a segment and I'm just like, wow, that was a really, uh, the president's brother had his own beer line. Who knew?
2: Yeah. Yeah, sure did. Yep.
0: (laughs) All right. Anyway, out of the time warp. Uh, Finally, we meet the main character of Roy Neary, played by Richard Dreyfuss and his family. And (laughs) I love how his kids, like, er, like he's so checked out already. Like, in, like, his kids are very, maybe not, I would say checked out, but, like, he's just, like, nonplussed by his children acting out and... His kids want, like, one of his sons wants him to do his homework for him. He's like, I went to school, so I don't have to do fractions.
1: <laughs> Spielberg is the king of, uh, I won't say dysfunctional families, but I will say uh, messy families. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
2: Um, I was going to say the same exact thing. Like, th- this house seems real. Like, yeah. it's not all well put together and perfect. There is, like, junk all over the place. Because when you have three kids, that's what's going to happen, right? There's, you know, there's yeah. toys and the train set in the middle of the room and everything. It's real.
1: Yeah. What, what is it? Toby? You're close <laughs> <both> to that? <laughs> <me. laughs> as, as a dad, I cannot say i said that. <laughs> you're close to that? Um, well, here's the thing. I, in. We're getting into this a little bit now. Um, I know a lot of people take issue with with the ending, with uh, Richard Dreyfus character, you know, um just you know, leaving his family. But this sets up that the family's almost already checked out from him. You know. Right. Nobody nobody yeah, wants that's true. to see that's a good then, point. Nobody wants to see Pinocchio. Nobody, you know, nobody wants to do what he wants to do. They all want to do the crazy stuff. Um, the wife is uh, Terry Gar another one of my dad's favorite but Terry Gar, another gorgeous woman in this movie. Um, uh, the the wife is kind of I don't know she's kind of shrill you know and the, and then the, she you know later on she's like, oh well we can't tell anybody he's like, well, why can't we tell anybody? you know she's so yeah. worried about what other yeah. people think that she's not taking very, into consideration. very
2: unsupportive yeah yeah, yeah. she's yeah. not
1: taking any consideration yeah. into what her husband is going through. I mean, her husband yeah. obviously went through this stuff, you know, so it's it's it, it it's not necessarily that he left them because they're pretty much already checked out from him. And it just gets worse as the movie progresses because they're the one that leave. Yeah, he, he tried he tries to pull them back when with that when the day that he goes completely bananas, you know, and she leaves and then she calls him and she's, he's like, let's let's have this conversation in person. And she's like, no, nope, nope not going to happen, you know, so yeah. they leave him. He's got nothing left to go back to. So
2: that's a great that's a great point. I never even I never even thought about that before that they're on the the kids and the wife Terry Garr, are on completely different paths than he is.
0: Yeah. I absolutely yeah.
2: agree. And plus, I mean, he 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 wants to see Pinocchio. So, I mean, I gotta tell you, as a Disney fan, I'm already on his side. You know, <laughs>
1: Pinocchio's way better. Listen, I I I like some goofy golf for once a while, but I'd rather sit down and watch Pinocchio because <laughs> I get really mad at goofy golf. <laughs> I mean, if well, well that's, a,
2: that's a... another great line. Just it's another great line in the movies. You know, we could go play goofy golf, which is a lot of fighting and pushing and shoving, and every probably gets a zero, which is you <laughs> Go right. there's a lot of fuzzy animals and magic. <laughs> right, right. I,
0: I mean, if my children chose mini golf over Pinocchio, I think I'd abandon them too. But all right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I. I you know what, kids, because of that, when a spaceship lands, <laughs> I'm out of here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just look
0: like Charlton Heston and The Omega Man, just the one person in the movie theater watching it over and over again. What other 70s references could I come up with while we're doing this show? Um, yeah. And I love how, like, so, like, what prompts them to, um, for Roy to go out, because he is a... Um, He's an electrician, if I'm not mistaken. He works at oh, the power company. Excuse me. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. He, he's a, uh, oh, what are they called? Okay. He's a lineman.
0: Right. And yeah. so he's called out in the middle of the night because power goes out all over around him. And uh, I enjoyed this one moment. It's another 70s thing where it cuts to the McDonald's and it says uh, 24 billion uh, serves. And I'm like, wow. wow, those are rookie numbers. You guys are have a long way to go before today. <laughs> Um, so, uh, Roy gets into his truck and gets lost and trying to find where he's kind of going amongst his myriad of maps, but this is probably the first classic scene in this movie here when he ends up in the, the flight path of a UFO and that turns his truck upside down and sunburns him because of the, the lights that bright, uh, Michael, how do you feel about this? And then his chase after UFO into Ohio, trying to
2: capture it. Yeah, what I love about it is that um it starts with a laugh, right? Because it, it's set up so well where at first the car comes up behind him and he's trying to find his way on the map and everything. Um and I love that he was actually using maps because like now we all have maps right, on our phone. Right, right. So you we know, don't it's really lost looking on the map. And the car, the car comes up behind him, and he waves him on, and the guy yells, you're in the middle of the road. And he's like, can you tell me where <laughs> this is? Turkey! Um, yeah. And then, you, then later he pulls up to the other stop sign, and we've already set up the gag, you know, that we know that the lights coming behind him could be a car, but then when he waves it on and the lights go above him, like, I still remember that getting a big laugh in the movie theaters. Um, but then, you know, what it goes into with... Um, the mailboxes opening, closing, shaking back and forth. Uh, every, all the power going, on, every flashlight, radio, car, and you know, like you said, Tim, seemingly being turned upside down in the car. It's another, like, it's another element of like unraveling this mystery and, and bringing us along with it. Because, like, it's the audience we're like, well, what the heck now? And like, yeah, he looks up, and the light singes him, and. You know, man, like save. Then the, rest of the scene is like this—you know, amusement park or theme park uh, ride. So really well done.
1: When 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 that light shines down on on his car and the look on Dreyfus' face is just. It, 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 I don't. It's just very well done. It's one of my favorite scenes from the movie when that when the when the bright ass light just shines down. It's yeah. just amazing. It's just amazing to me. Um, the chase afterwards is very much uh, Spielberg pulling from Hitchcock again, which Spielberg does a lot. <laughs> but the yes. tension for yeah. that is 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 very very hitchcock it's very well done that, that chase afterwards when you i mean because hitchcock we're, we're going to show you the bomb you know and then we, right <laughs> you know and he shows you the kid like, oh <laughs> shit <laughs> <laughs> so yeah yeah it's 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 very it's very well done and i love the gag
2: of the the cop car chasing the <laughs> UFO right off the cliff. Yeah. <laughs>
1: that's him yeah. really that, 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 saying, uh, you remember Strip Atlantic Here, let me show All you right. some of that. <laughs> hey, I,
0: I mean, like, this is, um, speaking of the cops specifically, um, I like to refer to these cops, especially the one who goes airborne, like the Keystone cops going after the UFO here. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah. They very much are. They they're the cops from every Disney live action movie at this time. Is basically no, what they are. No, you're exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> They brought them over from the <laughs> Kurt Russell movie and put them in. thing. That <laughs> That's exactly what I, I was thinking. World's strongest man. That's exactly what I was yeah.
0: thinking. I, I mean, if it like if they had like Jackie Gleason from like the Smoky and the Bandit movies, like that would just be perfect. So just, oh God, <laughs> with the car great. in pieces uh, flying <laughs> after uh, the UFO. But it is, and it's one of the things that like somebody put a video together recently um, like that Spielberg has a very subtle um I don't want to say paranoia, but he has a, a distrust of authority because like he has like alright, the military mm-hmm. figures here are should not be trusted. There is a question of like then mm-hmm. you think of like the cops in Sugar Land Express, like at least a few of them use um over overzealous force in trying to stop the uh, couple and that. Mm-hmm. And then you think of like the moral questions of the minority report, and the responses, of, and then like things of, like in Munich, yeah. and like their responses to things, and it's it's the first time I really start to realize that like oh he's starting to have like it's it's a little subversive. It's not like too blatant the fact that like he's has questions about that. Um, but you know, this is like one of the first iconic scenes of this movie, and it just I, whenever I think of this movie, like the images that come to mind, the very first one. It's always the truck on the train tracks and the light engulfing it. Mm. Mm
1: And yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. It's, 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 it's an amazing shot. That shot right there is just amazing. The look on Dreyfus's face, the way, the, the way the lighting is just, I don't, it's not, it's something that you don't notice often when, when they talk about lighting in movies, but with, I mean, this is just obviously so blatant, but it's just like, wow, that's just amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. There's
0: a reason why Vilmos Siegman, the guy who photographed Sugarland Express as well as this, won the Oscar for Best Cinematography for this.
1: Oh, nice, nice. Mm, yeah, Definitely. well deserved. It is. It uh, is well deserved. It's a. It's a. It's a beautifully shot film. There. There is not a shot in this film that is. Um, that is. That is ugly, or I mean, there. It's a beautifully shot film. Beautifully.
0: Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree, and and apparently how they did the all the stuff flying out of the the truck there is literally the truck was on a gimbal, very much like how the old Fred Astaire dancing on the ceiling scenes were, like the oh. the hmm. the light. That's shining in like that's the light source for the camera, mounts on the same platform the truck is, and they just flip that upside down. So the light never moves, the camera never moves, but he's upside down. Hence, why all the stuff flies out of there. And you think you sit back and think about it, like that is so simple. Like, it, it, like why didn't yeah. like like yeah. like you kind of hit yourself in the forehead? Like, duh, of course, that's how you would do that. Yeah, that's,
1: that's mm-hmm. crazy.
0: And so this is when, like, obviously, like you mentioned, where Roy almost hits, uh, Barry, uh, accidentally, um, and we get a glimpse of, like, one of the, uh, farmers here is the old man who shovels the ice in, um, Home Alone, um,
2: Yes, mm. that's yep. right. Yep.
0: And Melinda, yep. Like, this is a weird Christmas movie kind of connection because Melinda Dillon obviously played the mom in a Christmas story. Oh, yeah, but she, yeah, she, she,
1: she's fine. she's much more brawless in this. Of movie.
0: course, you would notice that guy. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> like this is why
1: we keep you around. <laughs> Listen, I very much appreciate the fact that she's extremely brawless in this movie. <laughs> And and, there's, and the in uh, the short shorts you first see her in, and it's all. Right, I understand you want like. I I, I love Melinda You Dylan. freelance
0: right from MrSkin.com. dot <laughs> com. It's fine. I'm not going to judge you. Just be honest with us. <laughs> no, they,
1: they should call me. Really, they should call me because I come up with much, much better stuff than what they're coming
0: up with. <sighs> ah. Um, and so Roy returns to his home and tries to explain to his wife in a in the heat of the moment right there, like something's going on right here and pulls his entire family out to the road to see what's going on. And I do enjoy the moment where Terry Garr says like, don't you think I'm taking this really well?
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's better than goofy golf. Come on. It's better than goofy golf.
2: (laughs) But again, her, her saying that though, now that, You know, Guy brought that up. That shows, like, how kind of uptight and, you know, again,
1: unsupportive
2: she is. Disconnected, she
1: already is. Already is disconnected. Yeah. Yeah. So, because, again, like I said, I know a lot of people, uh, Andy, our friend Andy, does not like the fact that he just leaves his family at the end of that. Yeah. They left him.
2: (laughs) No, it's a great Um,
0: point. I I even tried, like, she even tries to reassure him by, like, wrapping her arms around him and kissing him just to, like, hey, that's that's cool and everything, but this is what the most important thing is here between us. But Roy looks to the sky mid-kiss, and mm. so you know things are uh, not going to work out. Yeah. Um, yeah. But while this is going on in the end, there's other things going on around the world. Um, so we go to India, where apparently a huge group of people heard this weird um, musical note playing, and it apparently came from the sky and it, it's so curious here like i, I mentioned before like Vilmos zigman
1: don't don't we see the coxable first do the we boat? see
0: the boat first maybe we do see the boat first i like i'm going from memory i didn't write i'm doing right
1: i'm the... I, I i i'm pretty sure we see the boat first because i think after after we see after we see the people the the oh day that stuff I think that mm-hmm. um, I think uh, Trafos in the United States the whole time after that. I think you're right if okay. I remember correctly. I just watched it this morning. I just watched it this morning. I could be I could be wrong because I I did take a little bit of a nap before. So <laughs> after I watched it, so
0: I could I could. Be I'm wrong. just glad you remember to put on pants when after you woke up from your nap. I think that's all I'm happy for. That you can remember meant th-
1: Oh, am I supposed to be wearing <laughs> pants?
0: I'm over here sweating bulls in my tuxedo. You're not wearing pants. Well, shit. Well, well shit. <laughs> Damn it. That, that, that's the beauty of people who learn, who have used to podcasting in a studio, realizing that while they have to podcast from home. Like, you don't have to get dressed to do your stuff now. Right. we've been doing this for years right. 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 I'm just right. sitting here letting oh. all my hair out <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh. I'm going to wash that down
2: Tim's like well thanks for joining us everyone uh, We're gonna,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and this conversation is over <laughs> this is when I'm going to edit in the um,
0: that's all folks uh, theme at the end of a Looney Tunes cartoon I'm going to wash that down with Gatorade make, that, make the memories go away <laughs> you get that out your mouth. <laughs> and so yeah we go, we go to the Gobi Desert uh, but like this is one of the other scenes that so what happened with the release of this movie here is that Columbia was in dire straits and they wanted this out for the Christmas season of 1977, like uh, Michael had mentioned. But Spielberg knew he needed another six months to finish the film. But Columbia says, "Hell or high water," the movie's coming out, and so the movie came out was a success. And he made like he made an offer to Columbia. It's like, hey, if this does really well, can I come back and? Put out a new version of the movie once, like with my version of it, and so they were like, "All right, fine, yeah, we'll do that," but we gotta sell it somehow, and so we gotta see the inside of the spaceship. That was the thing that he had to concede the um, in order to do this, his version of the movie, and so that's why,
1: which he hates. What'd you say? He very he, which he hated doing. He was very. very he's been very. He's been very adamant about his feelings about that, like uh, like King is about The Shining, Kubrick's <laughs> The Shining. Mm-hmm. He was not a fan of having to show the inside, which that was the one I grew up on. So it never, it never, you know, I, I it never bothered me. I, I get what he says now that I'm older, but I never, I I, 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 grew up. That's the one I saw first, and the one I watched forever. So
0: right, and like so. When it was like a year and a half later, they shot this Gobi uh, Desert uh, set piece here. And so Vilma Zygmunt didn't come back to photograph it. Uh, A guy by the name of Alan Davio did, who would become Spielberg's go-to cinematographer for the rest of the 80s outside of the Indiana Jones movies. Like, he photographed E.T., Color Purple, Empire of the Sun.
1: Hmm. Oh, I didn't realize a different that, that he had a different guy there. Because you you can't tell the difference if you ask me, but I don't have the eye that you do, so maybe you can tell the difference. I don't see the difference.
0: I, I didn't know that until I did like research about that, and I'm like, oh because because like like you oh, said, okay. it is so seamless.
1: Hmm. I love the scene though. It kinda it's kinda it's not necessarily a jump scene, but it kinda it's very exhilarating scene when those things come over the dune, the 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 dune buggies come over doing. I it's just very exhilarating.
2: Oh yeah. And,
1: the, and I love how we're, we're seeing it from underneath.
0: Right. Of. And that's a four foot model and all the people are a quarter of a mile away in a force perspective the ship.
1: Really? That's nice. That's oh, really. wow. That's, wow. that's 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 great. That's impressive. Because yeah. you would never notice like that. you because you always just think like oh
0: they just Found a giant ship, and they helicoptered it into the Gobi Desert.
1: Well, I, I just wow. assumed it was—it was—it was, you know, uh, either a matte painting or, or and, you know, obviously superimposed on there or something. You know, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's why I enjoy old school techniques like that. Like forced perspective is really cool. Like that's I find really. Like I love the idea yeah. of miniatures. Cause I think they just look they when done right they look well. I mean. Mm.
1: Oh, the are great, um, like yes.
0: When Michael and I, we discussed Superman, there are some miniatures in the first Superman movie that not work. It kind of looks like when he blocks up the dam during the missile attack, it does look like Thunderbirds.
1: Mm. Yeah, oh. Right. The whole flooding of that village underneath the dam is extremely like, oh yeah, those look like toys. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Yes, yes. Somebody <laughs> flooded... Uh, Alec Baldwin's a uh, village from Beetlejuice and Superman has to come and, and protect them. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and so yeah. And then they go to India where they get the recording uh, of the melody that the all these people heard. And then I think one of the other most famous shots of this movie where they have everybody in the back of the hill and the shaman asks, like, where did the sound came from? And in the foreground... A like hundred hands point to the sky.
1: Oh, oh, oh! Yeah, I have the oh, paperback man. of this. Um, and in the middle of it is a bunch of a bunch of pictures. Obviously, one of the one of the, one of the pictures is everybody pointing to the sky.
2: Yeah, of of all of the very spielbergian shots in this steven spielberg movie that's the most steven spielberg-esque you know he just like yeah that's one yeah. of his like almost trademark where like um uh, i don't know he like it's just framed like a painting or like a picture yeah. you know yeah. perfectly they ask you know where did you hear these sounds and then all the hands come up into the into the frame it's just beautiful
1: it is
0: it and i love how is. this is edited because we see all the hands come in and then we cut to the United States and everybody stands up like as a match cut. Everybody's standing up to everybody applauding mm. to the, the melody they just broken down from the singing. And I guess we can kind of get mm-hmm. into this now, uh, Michael, how do you feel about like the, the five notes, the, the signature five notes. And then the rest of like, we kind of touched on it a little before, but John Williams score that's played throughout the movie.
2: Yeah, John Williams' score is, uh, I think Guy summed up best. It's probably one of his most underrated uh, scores because, you know, whenever they talk about John Williams, I feel like you never hear of this movie, but it's a really good score. And then these five notes, like, whoever came up with them, who knew that they'd become so iconic? Um, You know, even, even at the time, and what's funny is at the time, there was an artist... I don't know if they were an artist or a group named Mico, M-E-C-O, and they had made a disco version of the Star Wars um, theme song. Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: That's that same year because disco was obviously very popular. And there was a disco version of the Close Encounters theme that used these oh. uh, these notes uh, in it, and it was kind of like a top forty hit. You'd hear it on the the radio, not as much as the Star Wars one but it's probably out there if you search for it you can probably hear it but I love I love the five notes and um the fact that it's such a nice melody like whoever John Williams obviously uh, had come up with that but you know something that stays with you uh through the film something very easy to remember and I love the scene where uh the Francois Truffaut character introduces it um Because it's it's a really intelligent scene, the way that he's introducing this and he's showing the different hand symbols for it. And I kind of think like that that scene in this movie was such a turning point for a quote unquote flying saucer movie, because for years up to this point, when Hollywood made one of these types movies about UFOs, they were usually a B movie with really cheesy special effects, a really cheesy story. Very unbelievable. Um, but, you know, with this scene, I think it was Steven Spielberg trying to take a very intelligent look at the fact that there may be life out there.
1: Oh, yeah, this is definitely an, an, an intelligent. Yeah, it's it's, it's very smartly done. Um, yeah, I, 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 I do love the five notes. I like later on that he that, that he calls back the jaws a little bit. I, I love that John Williams likes to call yes. back. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> that he calls back on himself. I love that. <laughs> I I think that's great. I, I think this is a great score. And I, I, like I said earlier, I don't think it's it's this and his uh, Catch Me If You Can are like two scores that he did that people just don't talk about enough. I mean, yeah. he emulated Bernard Herman so well in in Catch Me If You Can. And then this is just, I don't know. Maybe it's because it's not as bombastic, you think? I mean, because I. I I, I, I hate to use the word "in your face" with John Williams scores, but he's very much, you know he he writes for the scene, and he's very good at writing for the scene. But this is kind of a more of a subtle one, um, yeah. And he is definitely the king of earworms when it comes to uh, to scores too, because you'll you'll watch a movie scored by him, and you're humming that that score for the next three or four days, yeah totally
0: it it was the first thing that was written for the movie was they needed the five notes and apparently spielberg Mm -hmm. and williams sat in a room for like two days going through many combinations of just five notes over and over and over
3: Hmm.
0: and they just kept coming back to this one and it was kind of just like a they're like all right i guess it's gonna have to be this one this is the only one we keep coming back to and who knew it would become iconic
1: well and i wow. love when 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 i i really enjoy the the people chanting it over and over again i that, that yeah that's what i i i end up doing that more in my head than the actual the actual score i end up doing the the people chanting it more than the score um so yeah
0: um and so this is when when we while this is going on the U.S. military, like, um, discovers where the, the map coordinates are going to, and it's going to the Devil's Tower in Wyoming. Um, but at the same time, the aliens have come for Barry. And we switched from a whimsical movie that's like a Disney movie so far, so, so far into a flat-out horror movie for the next, like, four minutes.
1: To one of the most frightening yeah. things that Spielberg's ever put on film. This this scene is absolutely You're terrifying. not kidding. Yeah, it is yeah. terrifying and melinda sells it so well and the kid sells it so well i mean it's just it was, the kid is still because they just want to play and he still wants to play and she's confused i just i yeah it's it's one of the scariest things spielberg's ever put on film it is terrifying and it's so well done um just amazing yeah. amazing scene
0: and how do you feel michael
1: Oh yeah,
2: I mean this is um you know I know he didn't direct it but this is almost like a warm up for Poltergeist um several years later um you know we've had all this wonder up to this point and now you know it, it is it's it's one of those um alien abduction movies um mm-hmm. and again we never see the aliens we don't have to see them we just see the lights through the The windows um, and all of the electronics turning on, very much like the the Richard Dreyfus scene, but Mm -hmm. now it's even scarier because we've been given more information. You know, so we know what's happening. We know that they they've come for something. And um, man, that scene where uh, Barry, uh, little boy, goes out through the the little cat door, and she, Belinda Dillon, is holding on to him. Holy cow. Uh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely terrifying. And then when she runs out into the yard and there's nothing but, the, you know, those weird looking clouds and the lights up in the sky, you just realize, like, he's gone. He's gone. So, um, yeah, very, very, very powerful scene and very on the edge of your seat scene.
0: It is truly terrifying. And I think deep down in his heart, Spielberg is a horror filmmaker there's so many times throughout his career that like he's done very scary and intense things, whether it be this or a good amount of jaws or the T-Rex attack in Jurassic Park, or like even our friend of the show, Jamie Drewley, like he argues like how horrific the opening of Saving Private Ryan is. Oh God. He's well aware of knowing how to build tension. And even though it's supposed to be, it like, you put it in in mo- the, the one shot I'm about to speak about. Like You put in a montage of all of Seward's career. It looks whimsical of Barry opening the door and the amber light mm-hmm. like leaking into the room. And it's like in a montage of all of his other works like, oh, it looks very nice and whimsical. But within the context of the film, that's terrifying. And you like Melinda, you want to run over and lash the, the door so hopefully nobody gets in there. And you think you're safe, yeah. but then when all the screws on like, the vents start undoing themselves and they're trying to come down the the fire. Uh, oh. The fire. <laughs> the, the fire um, the, in, in the, the flu, flu, I'm just like, the uh, yeah, please yeah. close that. Yeah. Oh, and then when all the electronics and all the, the, the dishwasher and the washing machine start going uh, haywire, culminating with Barry being yanked out the cat door, I feel a little bit better knowing now that it was actually. Carrie Duffy's like m- actual mother on the other side of the, the door pulling him out. So it's like, okay, at least there's a responsible person doing that. Oh, no, that's but cool. Oh, yeah. In the movie, like, no, you like you like once Michael brought it up, my hands instinctively clinched because I don't want to let go of that kid's legs. I don't want that alien to take away that <laughs> child. And like what guy says, Melinda sells it a hundred percent. And I believe she was nominated for a best supporting actress. For this movie and it's kind of sad that she did not win that year
1: well we, we know her brother <sighs> nominated
0: doing so well we're going well yeah <laughs> I,
1: I i will say that scene where we're looking down the chimney at her while she's trying to shut the shut the flu i i i always wondered if uh that's what gave uh, Sam Raimi the idea for following the evil dead, the way he does in the, in his movies, mm. you know, the, 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 like going around the, um, in the cabin in evil dead too, how he falls around, you know, the, the, or, or just the way the evil dead move or anything, because I mean, that's, that, that's a terrifying scene. And it just made me curious. Huh.
0: I never thought of that, but you know what? I would not be surprised. Um, and just for people wondering, uh, Marissa Redgrave won Best Supporting Actress that year for the movie *Julia*, playing the title role. Huh. Was Melinda yeah, Dillon nominated? Like, it, the movie was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. It was one for. It was nominated for Best Director, Best Supporting Actress, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Original Score, Best Art Direction, Best Sound, Best Visual Effects. Only winning Best Cinematography. Who, who, that
1: who won best year. Record That year, I, I I knew Spielberg didn't win for years. He was he got snubbed forever. It was a, it was yeah. Uh, he did
0: Woody Allen for Annie Hall.
1: Oh Jesus Christ! Oh,
2: that's right, that's right. Yeah, one. Yeah, and Annie Hall won Best Picture over Star Wars. Yes, he did. Year. I remember mm-hmm. that. That's crazy when you think about it. Yeah,
0: um, it I mean, like somebody put out that theory years ago, like. Okay, because Tuber was again nominated for E.T., but he lost to Richard Attenborough, who won for Gandhi. And the next movie he does, right. like, so again, the movie Gandhi is a pro-Indian movie, and it's less against, it's it's battling against British occupation in India, but it's the British Army that saves Indiana Jones and everybody in Temple of Doom, and Richard Attenborough plays John Hammond, the one responsible for so many deaths in Jurassic Park. Yeah,
3: that's right. It's got to be a coincidence. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Um,
0: Yeah, and so Melinda Melinda Dillon, like she decides to, after being interviewed by the U.S. Army about what happened, she decides to get away from everybody. And I love how the people who've seen the UFOs are kind of dissuaded by the military. Like, this is a flying saucer. And uh, it's thrown by my boy in our backyard. <laughs> there was the the, the military get a real yuck out of that. Yeah. The the the
1: the, the disgust on Dreyfus's face is priceless. Yeah. The, just yeah. just that 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 look of it's it's disgust and defeat all in the same in the same emotion. I just I I just i you know, just like oh yeah, I feel for the guy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love how he makes the point here, though when like the um like the government or the the military official is talking about how you know pictures like this are created by uh people who you know are into UFOs and interested in UFOs. Yeah. That's kind of what he's intimating. And Drive yeah. says, but I didn't want to see this. Like yeah. you know, he's yeah. he's trying to make the point like I I'm not here because I was into UFOs. I'm I'm here because this happened to me, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah, and his yeah. argument is not help when the guy across the table says, "I've seen Bigfoot before." Yeah. <laughs> that's right.
2: That's right. Yeah. So the whole room is
0: whatever evidence and validity they've had, like Crackpot McGee, has kind to sunk their ship. Um, <laughs> and fun fact: the military official speaking there is the uh, what was it? He's uh. Leah Thompson's father in Back to the Future. He's the one who hits uh, Marty McFly with the car.
2: Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know. that. It wasn't years
0: until, like, I re- like I think I had watched this. And I'm like, why do I recognize that gentleman? I looked it up, and I'm like, holy crap. He was the one who hit Marty w- with the car instead of uh, Crispin Glover. Um, wow. But while he's being – he's having uh, – being told, like, no, there's no such thing as UFOs. Roy is starting to slowly descend into madness, seeing things like these weird shapes in everyday life, whether it be shaving cream or mashed potatoes and a very uncomfortable scene at the dinner table, and the family is literally telling themso- tearing themselves yes. apart. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. It, it, it is something like here when it's, it's that shot is like, in, like Dreyfus is in profile and his son's in the background and his son's starting to cry and Dreyfus is just like um yeah. I guess you're probably wondering why dad's feeling a little strange these days and I my heart breaks for him here
3: yeah,
1: well, yeah yep. he, he, he he's not getting support at home he's not getting any answers from the government he's got this thing going on it's um I hate to use it as a, because I, it's not but it's like a metaphor a metaphor for depression you know what i mean the guy the guy is going through something and he's not getting any help anywhere at all you know yeah no it's totally it's it's, yeah yeah it's 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 completely just i mean it it, it's hard it's heartbreaking to see his kid like that but it's also heartbreaking for 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 poor roy because he's just going through something and nobody understands nobody
2: yeah, he, he. as far as he knows, he's having some sort of nervous breakdown. You yeah. Know, and he, he yeah. can't get anybody to help. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah Even exactly. to the point where, like, the next scene where he's in the bathtub and he's trying to just wash himself, like, he's trying to just drown all the stuff out. And his wife comes in and they start screaming at him and his, his kids start screaming. And his kids sitting there calling
1: him a crybaby. His yeah. kid is yeah. calling him a crybaby. Which...
0: Is taken, yep. like, when I saw the Spielberg documentary, when Spielberg's parents split up, he saw his dad cry when, like, it was finally over between he and his mother, and Spielberg
1: called his father a crybaby. baby huh. Oh. Oh, wow. And I'm just, I, 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 the the, 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 calling your dad is a crybaby, and I'm just like, ah, ah. No, he's, it's not like, you know, like, when because my boys make fun of me because I'll cry <laughs> at movies, obviously. Um, it, it, there's, but there's a big difference between crying at a movie and then sitting in the bathtub in while the shower pouring on you, crying your eyes out because you were legitimately in pain, and then somebody yeah. calling you a crybaby, and then and then Roy has to man up and say, "Listen, you two, you need to stop." He mans up there in that scene and stress, "No, listen, listen, we'll stop, we'll do this, we'll do that." You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
0: and I guess like anybody who's had like a, a troubled home in any kind of respect, all the kids like sit, standing in their doorways, listening to their parents fight. Um, is it, it, very it hits. It hits home for a lot of people. It's a very like we we're gonna have this movie includes thousands of, of flowing flying uh, saucers, but what sells this movie is the emotion of this family right here, of they in this small home.
2: Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely.
0: And so Roy decides, like, you know what? I'm going to take all the UFO stuff down. Everything's going to be fine. Every- We're going to go back to normal. Like nothing's
2: ever happened. Until he, and it's actually Marvin Marvin the Martian convinces him of that. Yes. he wakes up that morning yep. and he's watching the Looney yep. Tunes cartoon. Yep. Um And I, I just think that's a obviously Spielberg huge Disney fan, which is why. Uh, You know, there's the Pinocchio aspect of the movie, but also a big uh, Warner Brothers fan, which is why there's a Looney Tunes uh, cartoon. But I love that like he wakes up and he sees that and he smiles and that's like his first inclination that, okay, this might be this might actually be crazy what I'm doing. I need to stop.
0: You know, I always knew I didn't like Marvin for a reason. And then he breaks and.
1: and then he breaks. The, <laughs> and then he breaks the tip off, and it all changes. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah, and it's so funny. Like I recently got like the like a DVD box set of like a lot of Looney Tunes, like over like three hundred shorts on like six DVDs. Um, and I like I mm-hmm. just watched that that cartoon, the first one with Marvin the Martian, and it was just so funny. Like I can't watch. The, I. I it's kind. Of, it's unintentionally tainted. that it's short for me. Like it's a hilarious short of Duck Doctors and Marvin the Martian fighting over uh, the placement. Who's going to claim Planet X? But like, no, I just think of a family being torn apart
1: because of
0: uh, arts and crafts in the in the living room. Right. Right. But
2: um. Well, it plays in the background for pretty much. The pretty whole much scene, when right? he goes, like, so, like,
0: how yeah. do you feel about this, Michael? But when he goes to, yeah, into the neighbor's yards to grab the chicken wire and everything, and dealing, putting the bricks and all, all the kind of crap into the house,
2: it's uncomfortably funny because obviously there's, you know, there's the the humorous nature of what's going on and all the neighbors watching and that one woman blow drying her hair and then she goes over to the other window and blow dries her hair the next door neighbor and him taking the chicken wire and everything but it's it's also an incredibly uncomfortable scene because you know what Guy has talked about you're watching a family here fall apart you know you're watching a your family completely fall apart and they're falling apart in front of their whole neighborhood as well you know everybody is watching this so um, it's it's kind of a strange balance of, like I said, just uncomfortable,
1: uncomfortable humor. Well, and and, and he's had a break. He it's it, it's yeah. it's anybody that's been in any kind of. A bad place, you yeah. you've got that break and you you see the light. You're like, oh, this is what I got to do. He's had the, he's had that break. He sees it. He's like, oh, this is what I have to do. This is what. And again, no support. No. <laughs> no. Nope. Um, nope. Um, I, I, the, the funniest thing The funniest thing is when Tim points the hairdryer at him. <laughs> I <laughs> the, the knew wall. that hair. That hairdryer hair confession <laughs> I said before the recording would come back and bite him. You
0: know, on a summer day, a hairdryer is a deadly weapon. <laughs>
1: But the funniest, the funniest scene is after when that lady is trying to round, round up all her geese. <laughs> that, just, that just makes me laugh so hard.
2: That's funny, and I love when Terry Garr is in the car, and he's like, "Where are you going?" She's like, "I'm going to my sister's." He goes, "Are you crazy? You're not even dressed." And she goes, "What? I mean." What? That sums up her entire Uh-oh. character for me. Th- that line? Me like what?
0: Yeah, the-, the absurdity of the question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah, this is very uncomfortable to watch. Like this is something like I, I, I literally do shift in my seat whenever I watch. This, it's like oh, because it's so public and everybody's watching, and. I, I do like the punctuations of it, like the geese running uh, uh, awry, as well as when the kids say, "Like, hey, can yeah, we yeah. throw dirt into our windows too?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, Dad. When you're done, yeah. can you
2: throw dirt in my bedroom? <laughs> that is great. And he's throwing the brakes. And
0: <laughs> it, it culminates with him just like Ooh. after he he jumps on the hood of the car and gets thrown off when the the family peels out of them the station wagon, and he just brushes himself off, calmly walks over, throws some more dirt in the window, dives through the window. And shuts it behind him.
1: Right? <laughs> right pulls I, the ladder I, in <laughs> I, I, I always want to know whose idea was it for him to climb up the ladder, jump themselves to the window, and then pull the ladder up? Because because that's just <laughs> genius. That is just a uh, man Yeah, saying it totally just is being, yeah. being completely defiant of I don't care what the hell you guys just seen. I'm 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 standing my ground. I'm going it this way. I just love it. <sighs>
0: And so he finally completes his uh, masterpiece in the living room. this like six foot tall, three foot wide replica of Devil's Tower. yeah, and, and of course, like he's on the phone with his wife, and he's like, no, we can we can we can we can you know what? we can solve this. we we can make everything okay." And, of course, in the background is the news broadcast of Devil's Tower when all the, the military <clears throat> excuse me, are trying to evacuate everybody by uh, spreading some kind of disease out of there. And so everybody gets the hell out of there. And so like, even though he tries, he tries his damnedest to hold his family together, the universe provides, like, nope, this is your destiny here. And thus he decides to go off to Wyoming. And at the same time, Jillian sees that while well, she's staying
2: in a motel, and they both go to Wyoming. What I love about that scene is just before he hears the newscast, you know, we joked about the whole Budweiser theme that was mm-hmm. playing in the background. There's that. And there's also um, the soap opera days of our lives is yeah. on. And there's yeah. the the theme song of it, like sand through the hourglass. So are the days of our lives. And he's looking out the window while that's playing and the Budweiser theme is playing and he's looking at all these families, you know, who are like enjoying their day, you know, mowing the lawn, watering the lawn. And he's hearing these very sounds of normalcy. And you can see, like, he suddenly has that realization that, like, his heart is broken again because, like, he's he he's realized that, like, his life isn't normal, you know. Um, And it's just it's a really good use of background noise on the TV. Like, I think there mm-hmm. that was very purposeful on Spielberg's part. Oh,
1: oh, I agree. I I agree completely.
0: Yeah, yeah and it's, it's something I didn't realize until like a couple of viewings into it like yeah, like he he yearns for a normal life, but he even realizes he can't go back to that. And so yeah. he goes to Wyoming and mm-hmm. I, I I like Spielberg is so great at reveals, like visual reveals like whether he like the camera pulls back to show something we pushed forward to Emphasize something. I love the moment when he's surrounded like he's got stock in Rand McNally because that's how many maps he has in, around him when he's driving the car. Yeah. Um, and he's like, he's driving right. and he pulls down the map and he's <laughs> he's driving into oncoming traffic when everybody's trying to get the hell out of Wyoming. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so this is when, like, the kind of eerily similar, like, there's some kind of a airborne disease that's going around killing people and they're trying to get out of Wyoming. Um, it's just an odd time. We decided mm-hmm. this episode, like watching it again for this, the show. And I'm like, Oh yeah,
2: I totally forgot about this. And it was a super, there's a scene too, Tim, where I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but there was a scene that like, I, I was taken aback, listen to it. I don't know if it's before this or after this, where all of the, military and government officials are sitting around trying to figure out how they're going to evacuate the area and they're coming up with the ideas and one of them says what about a plague and somebody says no one's going to believe a plague in this day and age
1: wait, wait, he, he, he says because there's always that one idiot that thinks he's immune
2: <laughs> right right yeah yeah and, and like,
0: yeah and he's like all. we need we need something yeah. to scare every Christian soul out of the 100 mile radius um yeah. Which I don't th- mm-hmm. I don't think they ever say what they use. I don't know if it's like anthrax or what have
1: No, they they, they, they say later on because they, they – uh when they, when they go – well, if you can't find them, spray them out. And he's like, what? You can't kill people. He goes, no, it's the exact same stuff that we use on the cows. It's just going to put them to sleep. Which I don't know if he was lying mm-hmm. or not. I didn't know if that was – I, I, I don't know if that is or not. I just I I, I I just go with it. So
0: otherwise, somebody needs to send flowers to Larry Talbert's family. Uh. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh,
1: if this was go on, and, and I was very, I was extremely, old. I was extremely, I was in my twenties before I realized that this this final scene coming up did not take place. On top of Devil's Tower. <laughs> For the <laughs> longest time, I thought that that all took place on top of the tower. I was obviously very wrong.
0: <laughs> now I just imagine, like, in order to get to the top of the tower, it, it turns into a game of death, and they have to fight their way to the top of the tower. So, inexplicably, Richard Dreyfuss has to fight Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It was a very one-sided fight, but somehow Dreyfuss pulled it off. Uh, and there's a deleted scene here Um, I don't know which it might be the special edition where Carl Weathers, Apollo Creed himself is one of the military officials when Roy is like looking at which road he wants to take and Carl Weathers comes up to him like you know we're authorized to shoot people who try try and go in that direction and Roy's like understood and he's like get out of here and it's like and he looks like and his his fatigues, he looks like Dylan from Predator. So I'm like, for a moment, I'm like, what is Dylan mm-hmm. from Predator mm-hmm. doing in this movie? Like, it, it caught me off guard. Wow. <laughs> but, uh, Michael, how do you feel about when uh, Linda Dillon and Richard Dreyfuss finally reunite and now they're together trying to get to the tower?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, I mean... Um a pretty amazing scene when they're like, everybody's getting into the, the train because just watching it again, I thought, you know, if this were today, they would have filmed it with like 50 extras and they just would have like computer generated all of the rest. And when you think yeah. that like they filmed this scene with like all of these extras in this scene um, is pretty, uh, pretty amazing. And I know Steven Spielberg was very influenced by David Lean um, who directed a lot of epics like Lawrence of Arabia and that. And you can definitely see that in, in this scene uh, for sure. But um, I I think this is like what this scene is. It's like another layer of mystery on like, we've already determined what one mystery is that these, these these UFOs, but now, you know, we're not quite sure, even as the audience, what the government is doing here. Um, So, you know, it's kind of another mystery that we're now uh, trying to unravel with, with the two of them too. So it's a great scene.
1: Nice. Oh, it's very, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I I love the guy selling the gas mask. Even, <laughs> yes. my do, even my dog has a gas mask. And each one of you is worth more than a dog. <laughs> that guy cracks me up so much. Having bought masks off
0: of, like, custom masks of people off Etsy, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? That would totally, that's totally a thing. People would do that. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh absolutely, oh, sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> sure. and whatever dog that I feel bad for the dog they, they strap that dog into that World War One mustard gas mask. I know.
3: Right.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he, he, he pulls it off and pulls his brick <laughs> Can't breathe in this thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so
0: they decide. So. Um. What was it? Uh, so Jillian and Roy get into Roy's car and they decide to go off road and cross country to get off the road and get, uh, avoid military entanglement. Which, like, watching it this time, like, you have a lot of confidence in that station where I can be able to go off road there. I'm like, maybe cars are different. Maybe cars right? are different <laughs> so to- today. And I'm, <laughs> I'm just not used to it.
1: Well, a lot of a lot. This is the '70s, and most of those suspensions were built like trucks, even even for the even for the sports cars. So <laughs> <laughs> he, they felt every bump. <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't want to be getting rolled and you get something bit off. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was
0: going to, like, try and make, like, a National Lampoon's vacation, like, we're going to see the Griswolds going the opposite direction with the ant on top, but no.
3: <laughs>
0: we a- had to go to the red
2: light district by a guy. Uh. <laughs> 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 oh, man, suddenly we're in, in a scene from the world golf all of a sudden. Yes! <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody's
0: uh, an eye out. <laughs> um, and so oh God. they get close to Ooh. the tower they finally see it but that's when the military stop them and capture them and take them to the base where Roy is interrogated by François Truffaut and his interpreter and I uh, I love yeah. this scene here between the three of them and like, like they're like, yeah. they're keep asking questions and every time he answers when he asks his own, and it's completely ignored.
2: Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I love, I want to talk to the, the highest person here and they, you know, Bob Ballaman points to uh, Francois Truffaut. He's like, well, I forget what's in yeah. Lacombe, Lacombe. Um, yeah, look yeah. He's he's the highest official here, and Richard Wright was like, he's not even an American. I <laughs> <laughs> love the way he says, Wait, he's he, not even an American.
1: <laughs> it was years before I realized that that was that that was Bob because he is absolutely unrecognizable with the grizzly Adams beard going on. Yeah, I mean, that's true. He is. Yeah, <laughs> just, just like oh oh, oh wow.
0: <laughs> for years I thought that was the same actor who played Fuchs in The Thing. Because he has a Grizzly hands beard and that and glasses. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: That's true. Yeah. That's true. And, like, yeah. I'm just like, wow.
0: Talk about, uh, like, it's not the same actor, but, like, I'm like, wow. Like, at the time, I'm like, wow. You have a good experience with aliens and a bad experience with aliens, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, huh? But how do you feel about this, Michael? Like, when him trying to, like, he just wants answers and Lacombe goes to his superior officer saying, like, hey. All these people came here looking for answers. I think we owe them that kind of courtesy.
2: Yeah, I love that um, Lacomb is so sympathetic to their plight and fighting for them. I, I think that was a really um, you know a really nice character moment for him. and like what guy said, like it shows that um, Lacomb and Roy are really the same person, like they, they have that, they have that heart. And, you know, this is something that has called Lacombe as well. And he sees that it's something that's called Roy and all these other people. You know, I think his line a little bit later on is they were invited. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I think it's just, um, it's a really nice, it's a really nice clash between uh, science and, and politics or science and government here but it's not a shouting match between the two of them, you know, and he he basically gives in. Like Lacomb gives in and lets them take the people away. He watches the, the three of the three characters uh, escape. But it's it's really a much um, everything about this scene isn't done as you would standardly see it in a Hollywood movie with the scientists standing up to the military, you know, it's done in a much different way, you know, to the point that You think there's going to be this big revelation when they show Richard Dreyfuss the drawing of uh, uh, Devil's Tower. And he looks at it and says, yeah, it's great. I got one in my (laughs) living room, just like it at home, you know, and he just like dismisses it and we move on with the scene. So I love I love how kind of um, once again, like this whole movie, it takes you down a different road that you weren't
1: expecting. And what about you, Guy? Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it, it, it's a it's it's a, it's a good. I, I I love how he keeps saying, "Where's Lillian? Where's Lillian?" Yeah. You know, because he's, he's worried about her also. It's not because, again, I and I keep doing this, but it wasn't the fact that he was because he was looking for a connection with his family, but now he's got a connection with with Lillian, so he's concerned. It wasn't that he wasn't concerned with people. He just in this situation that he had no idea what what to do about it and wasn't getting any support. She's there supporting him. She's doing exactly what his wife should have done, you know, you know yeah. an hour ago in the yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah. I absolutely
0: agree. And it's one thing with Spielberg movies, especially with the camera work, like the camera is an active participant in his movies where like like the camera can like obviously mm. will follow people through spaces and everything, but the camera will move on its own if for the right moment and I, it's it's such a great moment here when it's a two shot of Lacombe and um, Laughlin, and it's just like, have you recently experienced a close encounter? And the camera pans to Roy to answer the question. Like, and then of course he just asks, like, mm. who are you, people? It's nice, like those little flourishes. Like most yeah. people feel like, no, that's too distracting. But I think it's it really underlines the the moment in that scene. There, like, it, it builds that moment. Like, do, have you? We've got all the preliminary questions away. way. Have you really experienced aliens? Um, and so when they are kind of finally be taken away in helicopter, in the helicopter, and then it's going to be they're taken out of here and then we can do our business. Um, I think some of the people in the helicopter are like actors from earlier. I think like, I think the old couple in Sugarland Express are on the helicopter. And I think maybe... Yeah, I think it's the the couple that uh, William Atherton and Goldie Hawn hitch a ride with and they eventually steal his, their car are like the old couple in the helicopter. Um, oh. I'm pretty sure one of the documentaries like they highlighted that, and so, but that's when Roy gets the nerve to take off the mask and see if the air is breathable. You see, this is the right moment to do that unless, unlike all, most science fiction movies, like, hey, we just got to a plan. Let's take off our helmets and see if the oxygen levels is, is proper. <laughs> right. I, like, I know Prometheus was eight years yeah. ago, but it still bothers me. Um, <laughs> and then so so Jillian, Roy, and Larry Talbot, another person on the helicopter, decide to run away from the helicopter and try and get across the Devil's Tower and it is it's something that Michael said earlier it's very David Lean like when we have all these people coming over the hill chasing after him and the hell synced up with the helicopters and it's massive filmmaking that just yeah Spielberg makes it look effortless and you're just like it's unfair how easy he makes it look
3: yep
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) um that's not me projecting whatsoever, um, <laughs> and that's when the military decides to gas the mountain. Hope to knock out the people that are there. I hope it's not out gas because Larry is, is, takes a faceful. Then he succumbs to it. However, Jillian and Roy are able to get around the devil's tower, and they get to this landing strip behind devil's tower where they've set up where they're supposed to meet with the ufos and they have all these cameras set up there is booths set up with all these kinds of recording equipment cameras at the wazoo and i enjoy this moment here between roy and jillian because jillian doesn't go down to it because she says i thought barry would be here and he's not and roy says i gotta go and jillian understands and so he sneaks down to it and then we get to the final like set piece in the movie of when all the spaceships arrive and all the different moments and all the different kind of interactions they have and the keyboard duel between a, a UFO and a giant synthesizer the government had built. And so, Michael, how do you feel about,
2: I guess, the last half an hour of the movie? It, it looks completely and utterly believable. And I know that this is very much like 1970s technology that they're using here with these giant computers and keyboards and sound booths and everything. But, you know, if they were going to set up a landing strip for UFOs in 1977, you truly believe this is what it would look like. Like, there was nothing in this look like or what technology looked like. But um, but this looks very, very believable. Here, just everything looks extremely believable. With which brings you into um, this whole ending sequence. The whole ending sequence is like going to a concert. It really is. Everyone's just kind of lined up watching this giant UFO uh, perform. It's just absolutely amazing. And you and the audience are there with them the whole time.
1: Uh, this movie was made for what? Twenty million dollars. Yes. Yeah, and every single one of those dollars is on screen. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, Absolutely. And, 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 and I, I would not be surprised if $15 million of that dollars wasn't spent on this last half hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Be, 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 between the, the synthesizer, the dueling synthesizers, um, the all the extras, all the equipment, the, the spaceships themselves, the aliens, the I'm just, I just wow, it is am- yep. amazing, amazing.
0: Yeah. It, it, it really is remarkable here. I mean, like, so they needed to find a an indoor enclosure because if they did this outdoors, they couldn't control the weather. And so
3: right. they
0: found a place in Mobile, Alabama, the Brooklyn Air Force Base, because they used to build zeppelins in World War II. So it was like 300 by 300 hmm. feet, but the doors can open up completely and at all, all the way open at the end. So they extended that by building an extension of the set with scaffolding for like another 150 feet. And at one point they're, they're, they're shooting in this this sequence here and Joe Alves, the production designer who was also the production designer on Jaws and Escape from New York. Um, at one point he's, standing out there and it's complete darkness except for the lights. He's standing out there in between takes and he looks up at something, he looks something above him and he sees a tiny hole of light shining through. And the hole got bigger and bigger because it was a summer and some summer storms had come into Mobile and tore all the scaffolding away.
2: Oh, in the middle oh, no. of
0: their filming that day. And they're like, Oh, well, I guess we're going to have to go tonight nights until we can repair that. And, yeah, like, it was such a um a huge undertaking because all the all the ships were done in post. Nobody knew what the hell they were going to be looking. They knew they would be looking at something, but they had no idea what they were going to look at. And so, in order to get the eye lines right, they literally had giant stands with numbers on them. And so, Schubert would say over a loudspeaker, okay, look at one, look at two. Look at three, and so everybody knew where they're going to be looking. Because otherwise, you're, you've taken family photos. Nobody's looking at the camera at the same time. <laughs> right, right, of, yeah. A, yeah, that's a fact. Like, most times at least one person's yeah. cross-eyed, and you're just like, oh, like, like I don't know where you're looking at. Um, and it really is remarkable that like, you're right, Michael. It's very much like a concept. Like I imagine this is what like seeing ELO in the 1970s would be like. <laughs> right <laughs>
3: right, yeah,
0: yeah. and uh, I, the the scoreboard with that synced up to the keyboard right i, th- I think is a g- brilliant touch there and when the giant mothership comes down and the design of the mothership was based on this oil refinery that spielberg saw when they were shooting in india as well as like, the skyline of like the san fernando valley and so they, they took like photos of san fernando mm. valley like giant like like, panoramic photos as reference to do, like, the, like, the bottom of the ship. And it really is, like, seeing that, like, of course, today, we can have a thousand soldiers fight another thousand soldiers on a completely CGI background, and call me an old man if you want. It's really something to marvel at, just seeing the the nuts and bolts and the in-camera work that they did here for the giant models,
2: Mm -hmm. yeah it's amazing it really is
0: even to the point where they're trying to make contact with the mothership and then just playing the five notes over and over and Roy is snuck down onto the level with them and he's in the foreground and there's a there's a tower behind him and the mothership responds like a bomb bomb so loud it blows out the glass of the tower behind him
2: yes Yeah. yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And but I think like the the one thing I the, the one thing I think it dates the movie the most is when like oh, we have aliens do descend out of the ship after people like Amelia Earhart and whoever come out as like missing pilots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I, I do like the the first alien like the big puppeteered one like the one with the really long arms and everything like Slenderman comes out of the of the ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 But it's yeah, I think like yeah. the one thing that dates this movie is the little tiny aliens because I don't think the costumes look hundred percent I they might be maybe this was not made for HD and so it's a little hard to it's kinda of mean to be hard on this movie, but I just feel like those aliens look a, have not stood the test of time.
1: I I think they're fine. Uh they work they work fine for me. It's it's not any different than watching watching jaws now today you know i i I think they but i'm usually able especially when it's a movie i enjoy i am usually able to put my mindset into the time period so i i I can go back and like yeah that's what the special effects were so i'm fine with it you know i think with me um i mean yeah they're they're, the you can tell they're just you know uh, a bunch of kids or or little people, you know, with with rubber masks, rubber masks on, and rubber arms on, but I, I think they're fine. I they work for me enough still.
2: Yeah, I think I I was able to go with it uh, as well, but I can definitely see what you you mean. Tim, I'm watching it again because I haven't watched the film in some time. There was that feeling of like. Their movements are very human, yeah. um, probably because, yeah. you know, they're they're uh, like I said, they're they're in costume. Um, whereas I think, you know, if this were something today, they'd be completely CGI and would have, you know, much different movement to them and might look a little more otherworldly. I think that's probably the biggest thing that they look very like very human and not so much otherworldly or alien. You know, well, just well, the
1: well, movements. Well, well, after you, because you, you get the Slender Man one, who obviously is extremely otherworldly. Um, yeah. And then you get these yeah. other ones, yeah. and it moves very under and looks very otherworldly, and moves like that. And, and then you get these ones that came out, and they just they just they they just walk like a bunch of toddlers. So I I I get where it's yes. coming from. I don't yeah. disagree with you, yeah. Tim. I'm just I'm just able to go with it because, like I said, I'm able to set my mind back with it at the time. Right. I, so I feel like all.
0: because like, the original idea was going to be like. 70 of those long-limbed ones, and they're all going to be puppeteered, and there's going to be, like, 500 puppeteers above them, and then they realize, no, we, we don't have enough money or the time or the resources to do that. And so Spielberg's like, okay, what about one of them? Mm. We can do that. Um, and it's it's very brief. I think it's because, like, certain like, the really close-up shots, like, like it's... Even though they're with Haze and there's people in the foreground... But I think the one alien, like, the one, like, stop-motion alien that does the the signature hand motion that mimes the melody that we've been hearing, like, that looks good. Oh.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. I agree. Oh, yeah. I completely yeah, agree. Sure. And
0: there, there's a really funny, like, behind-the-scenes photo, if you look it up, it's literally one of the aliens, like, in, like, the, the, all the, like, the aliens in the suits were, like, little girls because they found, like, little girls walk, like, more petitely and more... Um natural than, than little boys, and that 's why I have a bunch of little girls like in those costumes. There's a picture of like when the little girl's like mm-hmm. standing next to the camera, looking through the viewfinder while Spielberg's standing behind her, like, I guess I 'm not the director anymore
3: <laughs> um,
0: and so it, I guess this is where my biggest hang up in the movie was for years until a conversation I had with guy is that Roy goes on the spaceship and leaves his family. And for years, I thought that was, like, a really... Because even Spielberg says, like, it's a young man's decision, and I felt like... I felt bad. I felt like you're abandoning your family. That was my initial knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. But, Guy, you've mm. you've said previously where his family's abandoned him, and then it's, like, it's probably for the best that he does yeah. go.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because well, he's got nothing to go back to. She's not coming right. back to him. She's right. she, she's She's... She's set her... She's she drew her her line in the concrete and that concrete hid, it hardened i mean it, she's not coming back she, they 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 gave him no support when he was going through this stuff they just got tremendously more scared and more worried you know they, they it, 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 so i it's it's not it still would be a hard decision but i again he's got nothing left to go back to so yeah Yeah, it's it's they left him way before he because he even when they were leaving he was there. Come on, we'll work this out. We'll do something. Da 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 da. You know. So yeah. Yeah.
2: And he has the last laugh because he leaves her with a house with a giant devil's <laughs> tower in the living room.
0: What's she like, going to do? How do the hell you break that up? Like, <laughs> uh, Right. Things well put together. I mean, it's got chicken wire built into it. Like, everybody knows who's right. done artwork with the chicken wire. That's a pain in the ass to tear apart. <laughs>
1: They're not getting that out without tearing the house down.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um... <laughs> But also, like, Barry comes back and he's reunited with his mother and the moment where yeah. he says bye-bye to continue on with the the methic acting that, like, he... Spielberg says, like, you're not going to see your friends anymore. And uh, Carrie uh, Guffey, the kid, interprets like he's not going to see any of his childhood friends anymore is that's why he starts crying and says bye-bye and that's what caused Melinda Dillon to start crying oh. and then Everybody on the crew is like, oh, this is just – now Everybody's upset right now.
1: Wow. She works so well with the boy, too, in that scene where she's like – Yeah. When, when, they're, when they're talking about, oh, he, he's," I saw you. She goes, I saw you go up in a spaceship. Did you see me coming after you? I just I, – I, I just, uh, she's very well done. They're, I mean, she was amazing. She's really good in this because she works so well with the kid. and She sells all the scenes. Yeah. Very well, and she she's got great chemistry with 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 Richard. So yeah, it's it's great stuff.
2: Very genuine.
1: Yes, very incredibly. Much so. Yeah,
0: and so uh, <laughs> I love how Roy quickly signs the contract to join the away team, um, and hops it puts on <laughs> his pajamas and.
1: Right. <laughs> he's the only one he's the only one that's going on. He's got he's the only one with any kind of face <laughs> The other ones all look like look like they're they've been in the military, they're all clean cut. He he's looking like he just walked out of uh the corner bar. <laughs>
3: um
0: and so he gets on the ship and depending on which version, like if you saw the special edition, you see inside the ship. Um uh, but when we came to the director's cut. Spielberg realizes that was a mistake and cut that out and the ship takes off and hopefully he'll spread the word of uh, the world over into new solar systems and everything. And the movie ends. And so Michael, your final thoughts on Close Encounters of the Third Kind.
2: Um, This is a wonderful film. And I think it was a real game changer for the science fiction Genre, much like Star Wars, which came out the same year, was but I think with this one it took a more um, realistic, no pun intended, down to earth look at um, uh, UFOs and life on other planets. And you know, in some ways, it's it's almost like an underrated Spielberg film. I think, and I thought that watching it again because um, you know you you hear so much about. Jaws and about Jurassic Park and E.T., but I feel like a lot of times Close Encounters gets lost in the in the conversation, and I think if anyone's just kind of starting to discover Spielberg again, this is definitely one to watch because um, it just shows how he was such a master at framing a scene and, and creating a scene and creating a story and character, um, and it you know has great themes and messages of you know, science and politics. And like you said, Tim, communication. I mean, this whole movie is about um, communication and whether that's communication with another world or even communication with our own home and the breakdown of that that we see here um, in this family. So I don't know if we're giving a letter grade, but if we were giving a letter grade to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I would give it a big old A+. plus. Very nice. And Guy?
1: Uh, first, I, I, I want to address the fact that um, I think everybody should at least watch the the, in, the the scene with the where he where we go go inside the the spaceship because it's absolutely gorgeous. It is yeah, it's, yeah. it's a gorgeous scene and it's full of wonder and it's full of. Um, I did not agree with it in my younger years about him not liking it, but I, in my older years I'm like, no, he's right. It should have remained a mystery. I get it now, um, but it's still a gorgeous scene. It's one that I think you should watch. Um but yeah I I I I I love this film. Uh, it's 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 always been in my top 5 of Spielberg movies. It usually hovers around 3. Um it's 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 I I would dare say it's not it's probably not his most gorgeous looking film, but it's not far behind his most gorgeous looking film. It's really beautifully shot. It's greatly acted. It's amazingly it, it crosses it does comedy it does horror it does suspense it does action I mean this this is a, a just a amalgam of all kinds of, of of genres just meshing into this this under the sci-fi banner um it's got a lot to say um I, I used it I don't think it was intentionally meant as a metaphor to for depression, but I think it very well fits the metaphor for depression. Uh, I, I, it's got a lot, like you said, communication, you know, which is a huge, <laughs> a huge aspect of the entire movie. Um, and I, 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 I agree with Michael. I think it's extremely one of the underrated Spielberg's, the the forgotten one, because it, when you when people list their top tens, if you ask fifty people to do their top five Spielberg's out of the 50 maybe 3 people would say this which i find yeah. absurd you know um it, yeah it's 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 a film you guys i think everyone should see i, I do believe that uh the, the director's cut is a superior cut um the the original is very good and i i really like the special edition too but it, the the director's cut is a it, so if you're only going to do one do the director's um, but go on YouTube, look up, look up the, I'm sure it's on YouTube where you can look up going into the spaceship. Um, but all three, you can't, I don't think you could go wrong with any of the three, honestly. It's kind of got the Blade Runner feel. You can't go wrong with any of the cuts because they're all very well. They're mm-hmm. all very good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I would definitely give this an A plus too. This, the, I it's one of Spielberg's best, and it's it's a it's a wonderful movie, full full of full of wonder. In in in, even though it encompasses all those other things, it's it's definitely a, just a, a a movie about wonder, and it's and it's wonderful at it.
0: Fantastic, and there's so much to say here. I mean, like it's like I've been trying to think of my final thoughts like for the past couple of days. Like, how would I wrap this up? And, you, and then during this conversation, I'm like, oh, this is going to be even tougher, but. What I came to is that when you think of early Spielberg, like Duel, that was a TV movie that was a hired gig and that got released theatrically in Europe. Some people can say that his first movie, some people don't. But Sugarland Express, that was a hired that was a hired deal. Same thing with Jaws. And even though I really enjoy both Jaws and Sugarland Express, this is the first time Spielberg really became Steven Spielberg to me. And it's helped by the fact that he wrote it, mm. because so many of the hallmarks of a Spielberg movie really came to fruition in this fi- in this flick. Because you have mm. the, bro- the the optimism uh, and the sheer wonder. You have the birth of the Spielberg face of people, a dramatic push in on a person, somebody looking off right there in a, in a wonder. Like it really <laughs> came to fruition here. You have a broken home. You have a a Fantastic score by John Williams. You had state of the art special effects at the time, done with miniatures shot on sixty five millimeter film, so it wouldn't have any um wouldn't degrade when you do the optical printing. Um and of course it was a huge box office success, earning over three hundred million dollars in nineteen seventy seven. And he I don't
1: don't know a $20 yeah, twenty million dollar budget. Wow. And here's a wow. here's a fun story Jeez. that's been
0: kind of well known. So George Lucas was on break while making Star Wars when he was in England. He came back to the states. He went to Mobile to see what Spielberg was doing in Close Encounters, and he came to the set where like the where the the basis of Devil's Tower. And Lucas was like, "Oh my God, look at this! This is amazing. Close Encounters is going to do Gangbusters, and Star Wars is it's gonna it's gonna crap the bed." So, Spielberg, like, so Lucas, Lucas says, like, hey, wh- how about this? Why don't we take, we'll trade each other points. You give me two and a half points of Close Encounters. I'll give you two and a half points of Star Wars. Spielberg, knowing what Star Wars is going to be, said, oh. deal. Oh, and to this wow. day, he still gets checks nice. on Star
2: Wars. Wow.
0: Yeah, Amazing. and so Spielberg yeah. being the futurist uh, uh, clearly and without this movie you couldn't have a Super 8 or Stranger Things and even much to extent you wouldn't have the movie Arrival from 2016 without this movie
1: Yeah This is almost the birth of mature sci-fi if that makes any yeah. sense Yeah, absolutely I- I mean, like- for for, for, for for the movies, obviously not in literature and stuff, but movie-wise, this is almost the birth of of, of mature sci-fi. I, I mean, you made the
0: argument, like, 2001 Space Odyssey being the first, like, flag in that. I mean, I know people, yeah. it has its fans and its detractors. But, like, but prior to that, you had, like, Howard Hawks' Thing from Another World, where, I love that movie, but, like, yeah, it's, it's a monster movie. It's a vegetable monster movie. Or Earth versus the Flying Saucers.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right, and yeah.
0: Then you had this, and then you got, to Star Wars, and eventually Alien and Blade Runner, Outland, and a plethora of science fiction movies going forward in the next decade, and so on and so forth, that, you're right, this was a landmark moment in the genre, and it's also, I think, a landmark moment in Steven Spielberg's career, because at this point forward, that he was a changed person, much like how I think he was a changed person after he made Schindler's List, I think he was a changed person after mm-hmm. making this movie. However, he thought he was made of Teflon and nothing could go wrong. And then 1941 came out. Uh, oh
1: that, yeah. That's, extre- uh, that's extremely underrated too. I think that, I think that movie hilarious. I love that movie. I love it. I think yeah, it's absolutely I, hilarious.
2: I, I think, I think people were way too hard in that movie then and, well, and they still are. I, I mean, yep. Paul yeah, I and
0: Cale leveled with him saying like, we're waiting for you to fail. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. so like it wasn't like so if it was not the greatest movie ever made, you know they're gonna cut him down to size. It kind of like, for like after Shyamalan made Six Sense and Unbreakable back and forth, and so they're like, we're waiting for him to fail. And Signs was kind of a mixed bag for people, so there
1: you go. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so here's 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 a question, Tim. I that I, I I'll ask you too, Michael. Um, Spielberg, you prefer. Pre 90s or post 90s?
0: <laughs> Michael, I have you go first because I've got to think about this one.
2: Yeah. Um, wow. You know, I'm, I'm trying to think because pre 90s, um, I think I'm going to go with pre 90s because I feel like the pre 90s movies, this. Jaws, even 1941, his section of Twilight Zone, the movie, the Indiana Jones movies, uh, specifically Raiders of the Lost Ark. I feel like they formed the Spielberg that was like the golden age of Spielberg in the 90s, where he really branched out and did so much more, um, Mm. you know, with Schindler's List and then even into the 2000s with movies like Munich and Catch Me If You Can. Um, You know, I just think when you look at the run of films that he had from Jaws um, through 89 with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, that's absolutely staggering to think, you know, how much those movies are a part of our pop culture and our movie going DNA. Um, So I always go with the I think I'm going to go with the pre 90s spill. I
0: mean, it's really tough because. My my favorite Spielberg is. movie is E.T. Yeah. and so and I love the the Indiana Jones trilogy. And I have grown an affinity for The Color Purple and Empire of the Sun and of course Jaws and Duel and Sugarland Express. But there's something about the post-90s, like post-like the nineties era of Spielberg, where like I really enjoy Minority Report. I really enjoy Munich. I Munich is the one I've gone back to the most. It's it's a very hard movie to watch. Because like for the subject matter. Yeah. yeah. But it, it, I think it's I'm gonna have to say post nineties Spielberg because he's far more experimental. Mm. Mm.
1: For better or for worse. Um I okay yeah. I I post nineties Spielberg is the Hitchcock. You know, he's he's the director. Um and it, he's a much better director, but I, I I don't even have to think about it. It minds minds pre nineties because I grew up on all those movies, yeah. uh, from, yeah. from 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 all the way up to say even you know uh, it, uh, Last Crusade, which is, was in ninety. You know 89. I mean? was that in mm-hmm. eighty nine? Eighty nine, yeah. yeah. So so yeah, at, at Last Crusade. I mean, I, I I I grew up on all those movies, and it's just it. It it formed a lot of my uh, what I what I think about movies today. Now I, again, I, Catch Me If You Can is is my second favorite movie of his of all time. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, and, and and I love the Saver Prior Ryan, and I and I love Shindo's List, and I love everything. But it's it's I, I I don't even have to think about it. It's 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 pre nineties because again. Pulp culture-wise, and I I grew up on those movies, you know. I so, want to thank yeah.
0: you, Guy, for the Sophie's Choice.
1: Because there is a distinction between pre and post. Oh, totally I, I, do, I, I, do, yeah. I I do believe that 90 is the mark where he went from blockbuster Spielberg to, to modern-age – spielberg the the 90s seems to be the the cutoff point and and i'm just curious because i don't think there's many directors that have that big of a distinction between their careers you know i mean hitchcock was hitchcock through through his entire career kubrick was kubrick through his entire career uh scorsese is but spielberg has like all all of a sudden after 90 he just went from blockbuster spielberg to master spielberg i guess is the best way yeah. to put it. you know what i mean so it's 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 and i and and i don't i can't think of any director that's has a career like that so yeah it, it really is something to behold i mean another thing that
0: changed with him like everything post schindler's list was photographed by the same person so it's whether you like it mm-hmm. or not like there's a consistent look but from Schindler's List on, yeah. Yeah. whereas, like, Indiana, the first Indiana Jones movies look different from Crystal Skull. But um, then, of course, Jaws looks different mm-hmm. from, like, right. from, I guess, or even, oh, here's a better example. Okay. Jurassic Park and Lost World look very different. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah totally yeah. different.
0: Yeah. But... Yeah.
1: Well, Lost World is one of his weakest movies. He's it's ever. Still done. Got, it's
0: still got some set pieces. I enjoy. It. I like the the trailer hanging over
1: the edge. It's got some great set yeah. pieces. So much. That, cool. the, the raptor to, yeah. foot. Yeah, the raptor. The raptors in the grass. But in in general, that's a that's a terrible Spielberg movie.
2: Yeah, I, I think that he was. In... You know what's interesting, though, Lost World.
1: No, no, no. By all means, go huh? No, go
2: ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, Lost World, um, even though it is that mixed bag, it was a huge blockbuster success. And Spielberg could have just said, well, I'm just going to keep making Jurassic Park movies for the rest of my career. And, you know, went on from there one year later to make Saving Private Ryan and then just diversified every movie he's made since then. He even made um, like a quirky little comedy, The Terminal, with Tom Hanks back in, what was that, 04? Yeah. Which, you know, it, it looks like a Spielberg film, but it doesn't really look like a Spielberg film. So, you know, I just very, very admirable in his choices, for sure.
0: Yeah, like he will do a big VFX movie, and it'll come out the same year he'll do a historical drama that doesn't require... It just requires a couple sets and people. Like, The Post comes out six months yeah. before Ready right. Player One.
3: Right, right,
1: right. What, what, yeah. Here, 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 here's here's another question I got about Spielberg. Do you think he's lost his blockbuster edge? I mean, cause, cause, I mean, look at Ready. I I, I really enjoy Ready Player One. I think it's a great. I think it's a great fun movie. But it it definitely doesn't have the appeal that anything from this time period has. The the eighties and and seventies.
2: No, no, no! This I'm really no no, 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 I'm really <laughs> contemplating it. That's a thing. Um, you know, it's interesting too. I, I love Ready Player One as well. I love yeah. the book. And I, yeah, but people criticize the movie. functions taking it.
3: Mm.
2: Read the book for steven spielberg to make but you know you wonder was it the perfect movie for steven spielberg to make in 1982 or 1983 when it was kind of on that blockbuster uh chart and you know would have been better of giving it to to somebody else i i I think it it definitely has all the hallmarks of a spielberg movie and, and i love it but i know that there are people who have who have who have noticed that they feel that that's in that movie
0: I got, yeah. like I really enjoy Brady Playboy. I rewatched it recently, uh, but there was this one voice in the mm-hmm. back of my head just wondering: Is this a
1: snake eating its tail?
3: Mm. I... Right,
1: right, yeah, yeah, Because I mean, he still does amazing movies. Don't get me wrong. I, I but when it comes to Don't the know, blockbuster yeah. stuff, you know, uh, I mean, even 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 like look at Minority Report or War of the Worlds. And and Ready Player One, and obviously uh, co- there's a couple others that I could. They just don't have the same wonder or innocence that his pre 90s movies did.
2: Right, right. Well, that's a good point. So many of his movies
0: post 9 11 were very affected because of that event. I mean, especially Minor Report, Munich, and World War.
1: Yeah, I and, and 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 I get that, but you know, you just look at his blockbusters, and he still makes money. He still makes blockbusters, but I I, I don't think it's the same edge that he had back. You know, huh, I think you're That's absolutely all. right. That's
0: I all. mean, like he's even stated, like he can do action movies like with his eyes closed. It's not a challenge for him. So you could argue, it might mm-hmm. like yeah. even though like he's stated, like the three toughest movies he's ever made were Jaws because of all the technical issues with that. Saving Private Ryan because of the sheer scope of that movie and Ready Player One because of all the technology needed to marry the digital world with the real world and I feel like he wants to be challenged and I think even as I enjoy certain set pieces of uh, Crystal Skull, I feel like his heart wasn't in it and his heart wasn't in it George kind of uh, strong-armed him into that
1: bullied him into it yeah he, he, he kind of bullied him into that one. i enjoy crystal skull it, it, it's not a good movie but i enjoy it um but yeah you it is definitely on autopilot in that movie
0: i mean to be on autopilot and still produce very wonderful images i guess must be <laughs>
1: yeah no no no, no, it, yeah. no it, 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 yeah i mean i mean yeah. he's like he like like Stephen King, when it comes like Stephen King on autopilot writes better books than most people do when they're trying. And Spielberg's the same way; he makes better movies than most on autopilot. You know what I mean? So it's 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 just you know some people are just extremely extremely good at their I, job. I guess you can you can
0: put this question to a macro level, like how many bands that aged out? Like okay, they wrote stuff when they were dirt poor, and they become super famous, and their music changes because they're not writing about living from. Uh, from paycheck to paycheck, or uh, or it's like, hey, like, oh, they got off drugs, and so a lot of their writing has changed, and so is it just the the changing of the artist? Like, is the times changed, or is it the artist that changed?
1: Or, 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 or a bit of both. I would say, I would say, in most in most cases, when it comes to artists, a, a bit of both, you know. You know some some bands stopped writing songs because they knew better the who you know they they, they knew better uh, and then some continue to write songs like you know the Rolling Stones which you know was the last time anybody was excited about a Rolling Stones album it's been
0: like Neil young putting out a new album like oh, I'm sorry Neil nobody wants to hear it uh,
3: like... <laughs>
1: yeah 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 the, the, we'll, we'll, you, you take the royalties on your old stuff and Tour on your old stuff, but stop putting out stuff that nobody cares about anymore.
0: Just team up across so. these Steels and Nash, and we'll be good.
1: Yeah. Anyway, yeah. before before we get <laughs>
0: so far in the weeds, we don't know how to get back. Uh, Michael, uh, where can people find you on social media and whatever podcast you do if they want to they
2: want to follow you? So, well, first off, thank you for having me on. Uh, much appreciate and uh, love talking with you guys. It was great to talk with both of you about um, this uh, this fantastic film. Um, I am on uh, Twitter at MLionsFL. Um, I host a podcast with Andy Degenover and Hunter Fagan called Disorder, Every Disney Film, where we look, where we look at every uh, Disney animated film in chronological order. Um, and I also have a blog, Screensaver, a retro review of TV shows and movies of yesteryear at screensaverblog.blogspot.com. Fantastic! And what about you, Guy?
1: Hey, I, I I've read uh, Michael's blog, and even when he does, you know, promote stuff I don't like, they're always a fun read. I I recommend. Well, thank it. you. <laughs> <laughs> like he talks about Roger Rabbit and other things like that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's always a fun it is it is a good it's a good blog it's a good read um thank you I, I feel
2: like i feel like both you and tim are my agents because every time i post one uh either one of you uh will repost it so i appreciate yeah. that thank you
1: yeah, well you know I, I i try uh i know thank tim you. does every uh, tim does every time guaranteed <laughs> um absolutely no problem thank you tim um and I enjoy. I don't get the podcast with Michael often, so you know I, I think Andy does his best to keep him away from me. <laughs> Andy's he's like, he's like, I don't want you picking up any guys' bad habits. <laughs> but <so> much fun. <laughs> That's why they're called bad habits. <laughs> <sighs> so uh, you can catch me on Twitter um, at Galactic Scumbag I've been a little more active Um, uh, the staying at home got me bored one day and I downloaded again we'll see how long that lasts Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm on Instagram at Galactic underscore scumbag Um, I'm I'm on episodes with Tim uh, at uh, Please Rewind. We just did. What did we? Just, total Recall. We just did. Totally, you need not just recall did that. Recall, which was, uh, that was. I know. Isn't that terrible? Um, that was a fun episode though, too. That was a really fun episode. Um, I'm usually on um, Dark Tower with Jeremy Lloyd. It's it's a. It's been a while. I need to. <laughs> I need to get caught up so I can do that, and then. Um, uh, we just recorded an, another episode for the original uh, Real Fans podcast, and I don't know when Andy's dropping that, but that's about the new in, the, the the new Invisible Man, which it, that was a really good episode to record, too. I think everybody will enjoy that one.
0: Yeah, cool. and uh, guy, it still boggles the mind, like, why don't you like Roger Rabbit? Ooh!
1: <laughs> if i could, if i could reach through the headphones and punch you in the dick i would I, it's good like it's
0: i feel like if people have finally met me in person it'll be like that moment in airplane where the woman's hysterical, and it's just a line of people there to uh, beat her up, to shut her up. <laughs> for all the puns, all the obscure references that went nowhere, and tangents that died on the on the, on the leaf right there. It's like, yeah, like it's gonna be you. It's gonna be my, it's gonna be for my friend Mike Wilson. Like it's gonna be a gaggle of people trying to uh, shut me up finally, but. Yes, if you want to hear <laughs> me continue to speak, like obviously, like Guy said, um, please rewind the RF4RM Retro Show. It's the retro uh, review podcast on the Real Fans Network where most recent episode is uh, Total Recall for the 30th year anniversary. And we have a bunch of stuff in the pipe for that. I mean, we're going to spend a lot in the 1985 because a lot came out that year. We had something we realized that, uh, after we were done recording. Like... And so I'm now I'm just like, all right, I'm going to be in 1985 the entire time. So I'm really trying to shuffle things around so we can jump around a little bit. But you can follow me on Twitter at Timothy Rooney 2. My Instagram at T Rooney 1012. And finally, my YouTube channel, Through the Lens Productions. You can go to youtube.com slash Through the Lens Productions. Through as if you're going through a window. All my uh, recent short films are up, and stay tuned to this show and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode, as well as the same thing with Rewind, because I had a bunch of things planned with Mike Wilson and I when it comes to this show, but before we get to that, I want to say thank you to Michael and Guy for taking time out of day to talk
2: Close Encounters with me.
1: Oh yeah, it was a good time. I enjoyed
2: myself absolutely this was a blast of thank you for having
0: me uh come back next time and continue to talk about geek and pop culture and we'll be speaking to you soon